4: Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
5: Next, they each shared some examples of environmental
6: justice problems they've seen in their lives.
7: Have you... Ever heard the statistic that uh, blacks and Hispanics are more susceptible to, say, cancer, or blacks and Hispanics are more susceptible to diabetes or heart disease? And I I like to say, oh, so blacks and Hispanics are more susceptible to everything from A to Z. And I used to ask myself, well, why is that? You know, like, I I used to think to myself, it can't be some, some type of genetic defect, because deep down in you know, deep down at the bottom of it biologically, we're all pretty similar, you know, uh, we're just different configurations of gene patterns. Um, So then I would say, "Well, well, what is it that caused blacks and Hispanics to be more susceptible to every disease that you can think of? And well, the answer to that is not because of some genetic defect, it's, because you will find that blacks, Latinos, Native Americans, and any other minority population of color or poor population are more likely to live or work in areas of a polluted and hazardous environment. And the the, the consequences are really dire. There's a case in North Carolina um, back in 1982 when uh, the state of North Carolina uh, in Warren County, they chose this poor Mainly African American community as the site of a toxic waste landfill to dispose PCBs, and I've worked around PCBs as a chemist for many years, so I know uh, how toxic and, and how toxic of a substance and how hazardous that substance is. But back in 1982, these PCBs were dumped along the highway, illegally dumped along the highway, uh, within 14 counties. In North Carolina, but for whatever particular reason, this one county, Warren County, which happened to be an African American county, was the the, the place chosen uh, for this waste disposal landfill of PCBs. And I mean, there seems to always be a selection of certain poor racial minority communities as sites for toxic waste disposal and polluting facilities. There's this uh, researcher, Dr. Robert Bullard. To us, he's like the grandfather of environmental justice movement, and he did a study where he examined the siting patterns. Um, I believe it was in Houston, Texas, and he studied and he did some mapping, and he saw how the siting patterns of waste dump facilities like, he found that it wasn't just a random selection of of, of land scattered over Houston. Um, it, instead, it was located in, repetitively, in, in predominantly black communities near schools. And what's ironic is, say, for instance, the city of Houston, they had a total of uh, five incinerators, toxic, a toxic facility incinerator. Four of them were... Located in predominantly black neighborhoods. And the fifth one, well, it was located in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. And so what he found that it wasn't random and it was somewhat deliberate and premeditated. And, and we see those occurrences over and over again.
0: Context of white supremacy. Deliberate. Premeditated. Chemical and biological warfare. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. So I have been told. This is our book club third segment on Harriet A. Washington's A Terrible Thing to waste uh, her book examining environmental racism we left off last week in chapter 2 how does lead and the chemical and biological attack on black people impact the behavior of black children that's where we are picking up at this week uh, I think someone mentioned last week said oh man she left out Freddie Gray no we just didn't get to read far along enough in chapter 2 to get to where she covers Freddie Gray we will get that far this week the audio segment that you heard at the beginning uh, the Before You Leap podcast where they were talking about environmental racism Uh, I'll just say again Uh, The sloppiness with language, uh, black and brown, that is nonsense. Uh, Brown is not a racial classification. Hispanic is not a racial classification. Latino, Latina, Latinx. None of these are racial classifications, and none of these are comparable to the way that black people are treated in the system of white supremacy. That will be stated explicitly within the text this week. She didn't say, oh, yeah, you can find. Uh, toxic waste sites where black and brown people, she said black people exclusively that's what we talked about all last week in chapter 2 and even the information at the end in the audio segment that you heard before you leap podcast 2016 they even included in Houston, it was 5 sites, 4 of the 5 I think that's 80% if I checked were in predominantly black, she didn't say black and brown, predominantly black areas Be precise, be exact. We should not ever, ever be using the term black and brown when discussing white supremacy racism. Brown is not a racial classification. With that, we will get started. Context of white supremacy. Harriet A. Washington, a terrible thing to waste. We are picking up on chapter two.
6: Behavioral fallout. The vanishingly low levels of lead that catalyze brain damage cause aggressive, inappropriate, and sometimes criminal behavior. Researchers blame pollutants like lead for a rise in disorders like ADHD, conduct disorder, and autism, which helps to explain why only 56.4% of lead-exposed Baltimore students graduate from high school. The national rate is about 80%. To better quantify the poisonous metals' role in behavioral problems, the director of Fordham University's Neuroscience and Law Center, Deborah W. Denno, conducted longitudinal studies in which she analyzed hundreds of biosocial factors that correlated with an increased likelihood of violent crime among 1,000 youths. After following the behavior patterns, compiled from such sources as their parents and school records, of 301 boys in the Pittsburgh school system, Denno measured their bone lead. After correcting for race, education, and neighborhood crime rates, the highest lead levels were found among boys who engaged in more bullying, shoplifting, and vandalism. Except for those boys with the lowest levels of lead in their blood, their behavior had worsened as they aged. In another study... Deno followed 487 young African-American men in Philadelphia from birth to age 25. They all shared the same urban environment and school system. She assessed 300 variables, including blood lead, and found that childhood blood lead was the single most predictive factor for disciplinary problems and juvenile crime. It was also the fourth largest predictor of adult crime. Others also blame lead for rising U.S. crime rates. In 2007, Amherst economics professor Jessica Woolpaul Reyes released her analysis showing that the reduction in gasoline lead was responsible for most of the decline in U.S. violent crime during the 1990s. In his 2016 Mother Jones article, Lead, America's Real Criminal Element, political blogger Kevin Drum details the evidence supporting lead as a driver of national crime rates. Like James Q. Wilson and Kevin Nevin, he correlates the rise and fall of crime rates with the addition and elimination of lead from gasoline. In broad strokes, as lead was banned from gasoline, crime fell, and it rose along with lead's increasing presence in interior paint and toys. This is persuasive, although it doesn't rise to the power of absolute proof. There are flaws in the data interpretation, many of which Drum himself discusses elsewhere. Criminal element? However, one methodological flaw that remains below the radar is the folly of equating arrest and incarceration with crime, especially when people of color are concerned. Being arrested or even convicted does not mean that a person has committed a crime. Neither is arrest a racially equitable response to behavior. For example, 92% of people arrested for marijuana possession in Baltimore in 2010 were African Americans. But this is because black Baltimoreans are more than 5.6 times more likely to be arrested for possession of marijuana than whites even though marijuana use among the races is similar. Moreover, false arrests occur. In 2017, prosecutors dismissed 34 criminal cases after body cam footage showed Baltimore police officers planting drugs at crime scenes. Especially for African-American boys and men, whose behaviors are more strictly scrutinized and judged than those of whites. A wide spectrum of social frictions contributes to a greater chance of interaction with the legal system and can lead to arrest, injury, incarceration, and even death, even when no crime has been committed. Several recent studies indicate that even black children are less likely than white children to be viewed as innocent. Black school children have been assaulted and arrested for politely contradicting teachers' statements for wearing braids, for playground fights, and for inappropriate clothing. One African-American girl was arrested when her properly conducted teacher-supervised chemistry experiment went awry, causing a small explosion in the classroom lab. U.S. jails hold hundreds of thousands of people who are there not because they are guilty, but because they are too poor to make bail or to commission the tests, including DNA tests, that would prove their innocence since 1989 dna testing prior to conviction has proven that tens of thousands of prime suspects were wrongly accused wrongly identified and wrongly pursued stricter stop and frisk scrutiny of african-american and hispanic neighborhoods racial disparities in the ability to make accurate facial identifications errors intentional or unintentional by law enforcement, and the perception of black Americans as criminals all feed unjust incarceration. Most people are aware that the Innocence Project and its offshoots have freed hundreds of innocent men from death row, most of them African American. Between 2000 and 2008, for example, between 50 and 70 percent of the incarcerated men exonerated by DNA technology were black or Hispanic. Most of the convictions disproved by DNA evidence involve African-American men wrongfully convicted of assaulting white women. This is a crime that seems associated with many false convictions, said Peter Newfeld of the Innocence Project in 2001. But most prisoners are not facing death sentences, nor do they have skilled Innocence Project lawyers to reevaluate their cases. As a result, determined University of Michigan law professor Samuel R. Gross, tens of thousands of innocent people are trapped in jail. If we reviewed all prison sentences with the same level of care that we devote to death sentences, there would have been more than 28,500 non-death row exonerations in the past 15 years, rather than the 255 that have in fact occurred. Finally, Crime is multifactorial, and so are its putative chemical risk factors, including environmental poisons like mercury, manganese, and pesticides, all of which cause behavioral fallout, including impulsivity and criminality. Slow Realization Why did it take so long for scientists to realize that low levels of lead were causing rampant intellectual deterioration and dramatic behavioral problems in 1982 david p rawl the former director of the u.s national institute of environmental health sciences wrote if thalidomide had caused a 10-point loss of iq instead of obvious birth defects of the limbs it would probably still be on the market in fact thalidomide and its analogs have long been back on the market But this fact doesn't weaken Rawls' observation that we have been slow to recognize the invisible, cognitive fallout from lead, and we have been even slower to act. The late child psychiatrist and pediatric researcher Herbert L. Needleman devoted his career to removing the scourge of childhood lead poisoning. The son of a furniture salesman and a homemaker, he graduated in 1952 from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. After a short stint in the Army, he completed his medical training at a North Philadelphia community health clinic, where he spent his days treating children whose brains had been damaged and intellects short-circuited by exposure to high levels of lead. His office window opened into a nearby playground where seemingly well children played every day. They had not been exposed to high doses of lead, but they lived in old, crumbling housing that harbored lead paint, so they were bombarded by low doses every day. Needleman wondered, was there an effect from these low, constant exposures to lead? He struggled to devise a viable way to find out. Testing hair, blood, or fingernails was not accurate enough to register low doses. Bone biopsies were accurate, but painful. Taking them just to test a theory is unethical. One day... Needleman gave a talk at a local African-American church and afterward was approached by a young boy who clearly admired the doctor and sought to share his own ambitions. But as he listened, Needleman grew dismayed. He was a very nice kid, but he was obviously brain damaged. He had trouble with words, with prepositions and ideas. I thought, how many of these kids who are coming to the clinic are in fact a missed case of lead poisoning? Needleman realized he was seeing the same signs of brain damage that his profoundly lead-poisoned patients displayed. Now it was more than an academic question. He had to discover whether low-level lead exposure was also destroying children's mental capacities. Tooth Fairy M.D. But how to test this? As stated earlier, hair, skin, and nail samples were not sensitive enough and bone biopsies were accurate but painful and therefore unethical just to satisfy curiosity. Needleman eventually hit upon a painless, accurate method. Herb became the tooth fairy, Dr. Bernard Goldstein recalled for the New York Times. Needleman realized he could test the baby teeth of affected children, and he began paying children in the city's poor neighborhoods with disproportionately African-American populations for each baby tooth that fell out. Needleman found that lead was cumulative, and that the average child had lead levels five times higher than those of his suburban peers. And an IQ gap of four points separated the children with the highest exposures from the lowest. These children who had not been suspected of being harmed by lead had relatively low IQ scores, poor facility with language, and shorter attention spans. When teachers rated the exposed children's classroom performance, a host of behavioral issues emerged, from attention deficits to behavior problems. Ten years later, a correlation persisted between their childhood lead levels and reading delays. Needleman was also acutely aware that he was fighting a racial scourge. When asked why he thought the government was reluctant to spend the funds necessary to completely eliminate lead from housing, he replied, Well, to begin with, it's a black problem. The increasing focus on personal responsibility replaced accountability demands on the lead industry. Rather than hold manufacturers liable, the onus of avoiding harms increasingly fell on the victims. A cultural shift. With profound legal implications. Cities sometimes failed to sue landlords who did not eliminate lead from their properties, worrying that if landlords were pressured to comply, they would simply abandon their properties, robbing a city of its tax base. Instead, parents of poisoned children were told that it was their responsibility to keep their homes clean and free of lead dust and paint chips. Public health experts suggested abatement regimens that included training parents in the use of cleaning products like Spick and Span, implying that parents were failing to clean frequently or properly. Health workers also suggested that toddlers be confined to play pens to prevent contact with lead, a laughably unworkable and unhealthy strategy. Full abatement of lead from the home was the only solution known to protect children but its cost was rejected as prohibitive. Needleman disagreed with this fobbing off of responsibility onto the injured, and he refused to accept that intervention was futile and too costly. Moreover, he saw lead poisoning not as a discrete medical issue, but as a symptom of social ills, medical and economic disparities that arose from racial discrimination. And as Rossner and Markowitz describe in Lead Wars, he devised a visionary plan to address lead poisoning in this context. Under his plan, lead would be completely abated, and the work of properly sanding, repainting, and removing and replacing lead tainted housing materials would be performed by unemployed workers under a federal program that resembled a latter day work projects administration. If followed, Needleman argued, his plan would remove the lead hazard while simultaneously addressing rampant unemployment in the lead-poisoned communities. In 1989, the plan's price tag of $10 billion was rejected as far too expensive, although Needleman noted at the time that no one decried Congress's plan to spend $11.6 billion to build new prisons. Since then, our government has spent far more than that amount dealing piecemeal with some of the after-effects of lead poisoning. And that doesn't include the cost of defending lawsuits against property owners and the unethical, short-sighted plans of institutions like the KKI. Even so, lead has still not been eradicated, and two of every three poisoned children in Baltimore are living in the same pre-1950 rental homes that Needleman's plan sought to abate. But Needleman's findings were a key component in the 1974-1978 to bans on lead in gas and paint. And his participation in various legal cases on behalf of poisoning victims made him an industry target. Accusations against him culminated in scientific misconduct charges brought before the Federal Office for Scientific Integrity. And later, before his own institution, the University of Pittsburgh. He was exonerated in both cases. In a 2005 interview, Rossner and Markowitz wrote, Dr. Needleman was asked whether the attack on his credibility was meant to scare off other researchers looking into environmental toxins. If this is what happens to me, what is going to happen to someone who doesn't have tenure? He replied. In the past two decades, Maryland has passed a stronger law requiring landlords to cover or remove lead-based paint that's peeling, chipping, or flaking. But properties are rarely monitored for compliance. And although the number of cases has fallen, at least 4,900 children were diagnosed with lead poisoning in the decade between 2005 and 2015 in Maryland alone. In reality, the number is probably much higher because approximately 7 million lead poisoning tests processed nationwide by Magellan's lead care testing systems underestimate lead levels, giving erroneous results. If rich white kids were getting poisoned, there would be a law on the books that say no lead in houses, lawyer Brian Brown told the Baltimore Sun in 2015. Today, Needleman's $10 billion price tag Looks like a bargain, even in adjusted dollars. Blame the Victim 2.0. Young African American men are killed by police officers at nine times the rate of other Americans. 1,134 were killed by police officers in 2015 alone. There is no salient justification for the disparity. Black men are no more likely to be armed or aggressive than their white peers. Police brutality is another risk to life and health in blighted communities of color. At least two of the non-combative, unarmed African Americans killed by police as they went about their daily routines were victims of something besides police violence. Both Freddie Gray, 25, and Corinne Gaines, 23, suffered from lead poisoning. In the 1990s, Gray lived from the age of two in a row house in Baltimore's blighted, lead-soaked Sandtown-Winchester area, according to a 2008 lawsuit filed by Gray and his siblings against the property's landlord. Average life expectancy in Sandtown is lower than in North Korea, and lead may be a factor. In his neighborhood and in several nearby census tracts, between 25 and 40 percent of children that's two out of every five, tested between 2005 and 2015, had elevated lead levels. As a result of being exposed to lead for two decades, Freddie Gray suffered developmental problems. The Gray family's case was settled for an undisclosed amount. In some newspaper accounts of his killing, I was surprised to read vague speculation that these lead-poisoning victims might have helped bring about their own deaths because of unspecified behavioral problems that are often linked to lead exposure. No such behaviors have been documented in them during the events, and this speculative claim recalls the -the blame-the-victim indictments of parents by lead-based industries. Quite aside from the questions of guilt and innocence in deadly police encounters with peaceable, unarmed African Americans, we mustn't use speculative medical scrutiny to demonize some victims of lead poisoning while winking at others. This bias compounds the victimhood of sufferers like Freddie Gray and Corinne Gaines by conflating their poisoning injuries with criminality. This same animus drives some to criminalize the parents of lead poisoning victims. In August 2015, Kenneth C. Holt, Maryland's Secretary of Housing, Community, and Development, dismissed the plight of poisoned children by speculating that their mothers were deliberately exposing their own children in fraudulent attempts to obtain better housing. A mother, he said, might place a lead fishing weight in her child's mouth and then take the child in for testing. He later admitted that he was not aware of any mother actually doing what he had suggested such demonization of the poisoning victims is not new. In their book, Deceit and Denial, The Deadly Politics of Industrial Pollution, Gerald Markowitz and David Rossner recount how a lead industry representative referred to the lead-poisoned children of Baltimore as little rats, and their mothers as over imbeciles. This baseless indictment of black parents illustrates a readiness to blame them as well as a default stance of callous disregard for children's health by the very institutions charged with protecting it. For all these reasons, our concerns about lead poisoning should be framed in a medical context, not a demonizing one, urges Ruth Ann Norton, who directs Green and Healthy Homes Initiative, a 22-state agency dedicated to environmental health. I don't know what Freddie Gray did between the ages of 3 and 25, but if he had been able to read well, had gone to school, if his family wasn't just fleeing from one house to another, the likelihood of him not being on that corner would have been a whole lot better. We know that. When do we want to stop dumbing down our kids? At least 37,500 Baltimore children nearly all of them black, were diagnosed with lead poisoning between 1993 and 2015, like Gray and his sisters. But only one in five black children is now tested. In West Baltimore, Olivia Griffin's children were raised in lead-tainted housing that slipped through the cracks of municipal lead monitoring. But she has now completed a job training program and found untainted housing through the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative. Still, her six-year-old son, Nazir, is paying the cognitive price for growing up in a lead-laden atmosphere. He acts out a lot, and was slow learning to talk, she said. She took him to a speech therapist several years ago, but his speech still gets garbled sometimes. You just have to be around him for a while so you can understand it the lead that once permeated the entire nation's homes and air now persists in enclaves of color. These include Flint, Michigan, which garnered the nation's attention when its people finally learned that their neighborhoods had been secretly flooded with poisoned water. East Chicago and New York City, whose poisoned denizens still suffer in quiet desperation as a result of segregation, deception, and fatal greed, among many others. Troubled Waters Poisoning Flint When water is pure, the people's hearts are at peace. Kwan Su In 2014, Joe Clements, a 79-year-old who had been raised by adoptive parents, turned to DNA testing to seek out lost branches of his family tree. He'd lost many loved ones over the years, and he was eager to connect with his biological family. In the autumn, his search bore fruit in the form of Randy Bullock, a half-sister, along with a whole new branch of his family. The joy in their reunion was mutual, and Clemens decided to move nearer to them. That fall he had begun life with his newfound family in a new city, in Flint, Michigan. But just a few months after he arrived, aging but active and healthy, he began to sicken. He rapidly lost weight and suffered constant stomach pain and gastrointestinal distress. Fatigue washed over him while climbing steps or with the slightest exertion. And soon he lacked the energy to go out at all. But Clemens lived with more than pain and lethargy. His short-term memory deserted him, leaving him confused emotionally brittle, and constantly irritable. He found himself unable to follow through on the simplest tasks. He couldn't sleep, his hands shook, and sometimes his legs did too. I'm always exhausted and now I have lung congestion and memory loss, he said. I don't even know the extent of damage to my body. Clements believed in drinking lots of water to keep his kidneys functioning well so after he noticed his body weakening, he quaffed tap water even more liberally than he had before. And why not? City and state officials had repeatedly assured Flint families that their water was safe. However, younger members of his family were beginning to sicken as well, and unlike Clemens, they had lived in Flint long enough to notice changes in their water. In the spring of 2014, Yellowish water that smelled heavily of bleach had begun gushing from spigots. The worst contaminant could not be seen or tasted. Lead. Flint water's lead levels were so high that it fell into the EPA's classification for hazardous waste. The service lines in Clemens' neighborhood were also made of lead. And because the water wasn't infused with the necessary anti-corrosive chemicals, Lead, iron, and chlorine leached from these aged, encrusted lead pipes into the already toxic tap water. By early 2015, its lead level was 19 times higher than before Clements had moved to town. Moreover, despite the assurances to the people of Flint, General Motors was so worried about the corrosive water that it stopped using it at its engine plant out of fear of damaging its equipment. Less than 2 years after he arrived in Flint, Joe was diagnosed with a rare aggressive kidney cancer. A year after that, he was dead. Lead exposure is suspected not only in Clemence's mental deterioration, but also in his kidney disease, says Michigan State University nurse educator Patrick Hawkins, PhD. Even before the lead crisis, Flint residents had 2.5 times the national rate of kidney disease. No one knows precisely why, but I fear it will go much higher as we learn more about lead exposure. Lead moves out of the bloodstream and attacks organs. America's lead crisis is a national threat to American bodies and minds. And as most now know, residents of the heavily African-American city of Flint have been forced to drink lead-tainted water since 2014. The result of bureaucratic short-sightedness and deceit. But today's scandal is not Flint's first brush with toxic notoriety. For at least 80 years, children growing up in the bustling industrial city center were surrounded by heavy metals that caused neurological disorders. Then, as Michael Moore chronicled in his 1989 documentary Roger and Me, General Motors' cars were displaced by more popular models from Volvo, Honda, and Toyota and GM abandoned Flint, taking most of its tax base with it. In its wake, Flint was left an impoverished, poisoned city. By early 2014, nearly half of Flint's 100,000 residents lived below the poverty level. 42% still do, giving Flint one of the highest poverty rates in the nation for a city its size. In an effort to address the $9 million deficit facing Flint's water supply fund, Governor Rick Snyder instituted an emergency management system, switching the city's water supply from Lake Huron, via the Detroit Water and Sewer Department, to the Flint River, which was tainted from decades of use as an industrial dumping site for GM and other industries that once lined its banks. Snyder rejected supplying the necessary corrosion protection for Flint's lead pipes as too expensive. Now, the city is enveloped in a public health emergency with high levels of lead in its water supply and in the blood of its children. Although lead poisoning is devastating to adults like Joe Clements, it is much more deadly to children, with far smaller amounts causing IQ loss, hearing loss, Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, dyslexia, and even death. And as usual, race is a more powerful determinant of environmental exposure than socioeconomics. Flint residents, news media, and healthcare professionals demanded that their discolored, foul tasting water be tested and corrected, but nothing was done. Although the Flint water crisis is now acknowledged as racially disparate lead poisoning, it was originally described as a problem that plagued a lower socioeconomic group. And even after the racial disparity was documented, references to socioeconomic exposure persisted, sometimes even among those who elsewhere acknowledge its racial nature. For example, in late 2015, Flint pediatrician Mona Hanna-Attisha, M.D., became a medical hero when she first brought national attention to the lead poisoning in the American Journal of Public Health. She described the city's blood-lead elevations as exclusively affecting socioeconomically disadvantaged neighborhoods. As in many urban areas with high levels of socioeconomic disadvantage and minority populations, she wrote, we find a pre-existing disparity in lead poisoning. Flint is a majority-minority city, meaning that more members of racial minority groups than whites live there. Most, 65%, of its 99,000 residents are African American and Latino. 42% are poor. Socioeconomic status, S.E.S., is a variously defined term that refers to some interaction of social and economic factors, rather than to race. When a problem is ascribed to SES, many assume that the issue is driven by poverty and social conditions, such as lack of access to education, rather than by race or racial bias. As a result, socioeconomics is often set in opposition to racial bias, suggesting that health issues such as lead exposure are driven by economics or non-racial social issues rather than racial issues. In fact, socioeconomics and race are inextricably intertwined. Residential segregation by race, an example of institutional racism, has created racial differences in education and employment opportunities, which in turn produce racial differences in SES. In addition, segregation is a major determinant of racial differences in neighborhood quality and living conditions, including access to medical care. Race also influences the economics component of socioeconomics. Any issue driven by poverty will necessarily have a disparate effect on marginalized ethnic and racial minority groups. 39% of African Americans are poor, as are 43% of Hispanics. 28.5% of Native Americans and Alaska Natives live in poverty, nearly twice the rate of non-Hispanic whites. Furthermore, African Americans and Hispanics earn 59 and 70 cents respectively for every dollar of income that whites receive. The racial differences in wealth, that is, in a household's economic assets and reserves, are even more stark. For every dollar of white wealth, Asian households have 83 cents, Hispanics have 7 cents, and black Americans have 6 cents. Because race is actually a component of the most pertinent definitions of socioeconomics, putting socioeconomics in rhetorical contrast to race is illogical. Instead, we must understand that race is an important component of SES. Moreover, Scientific reports have consistently demonstrated that race poses a stronger risk factor for the placement of environmental poisons than poverty. Poverty is a driver of environmental exposures, but race is a greater driver. Reflecting this truth, the definition of SES in public health spheres explicitly includes race as a factor. As Professor David R. Williams of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health notes, all indicators of SES are strongly patterned by race. Accordingly, although initial media accounts didn't mention race but referred to Flint's poverty as the key risk factor, with time, accounts acknowledged that race was the salient vulnerability. It is just a few IQ points. Some think racial bias encouraged the callousness with which even professionals contemplated the poisoning of children in Flint. For example, 274 pages of emails retrieved from the office of Governor Snyder reveal a dismissive stance toward the people, including pediatricians, voicing their concerns. They were derided as an anti-everything group. In a February 2015 email, A state nurse dismisses a mother's concern about her son's brain damage due to his elevated blood lead level, writing, It is just a few IQ points. It is not the end of the world. This indifference contrasts starkly with the 2013 Detroit Department of Health and Wellness Promotion Study of the city's schoolchildren that linked early childhood lead exposure to educational testing data from the Detroit public schools researchers found lower academic achievement in mathematics, science, and reading among elementary and junior high school students who had suffered lead exposure. But polluting industries also downplay the significance of a little IQ loss, says Bruce Lanfear, an environmental health expert at British Columbia's Simon Fraser University. The chemical industry argues that the effects of toxins on children is subtle and of little consequence, but that is misleading. To be sure, not every chemical is harmful or harmful in small doses, but lead is. You'll recall that the CDC states that there is no safe level of exposure. Science tells us that even a small IQ drop could indeed be the end of, if not a child's world, certainly his dreams. This is clear once one understands what the loss of a few IQ points betokens to a child and to our society. Scientists find it difficult to determine the number of lost IQ points due to lead exposure because there are so many variables. These include the type and duration of exposure, the developmental stage at which exposure began, the amount and sort of co-exposures a child is subject to, mercury, for example, and whether the child has benefited from compensatory enrichment like pre-kindergarten classes or treatments like lead chelation. But the best, strictly regulated analyses consistently show that children forfeit approximately one-quarter to one-half of an IQ point for every microgram per deciliter of blood lead. This means that a child with a blood lead reading of 10 micrograms per deciliter, for a long time the lowest threshold for diagnosed poisoning, loses about 5 IQ points. An IQ drop of 5 points makes a child a bit slower to learn and reduces her memory capacity as well as her ability to read and calculate. Her tests will reveal consistently lower scores. But in addition to IQ loss, lead poisoning sabotages a child's ability to learn by engendering learning disabilities, hearing loss, balance disorders, hyperactivity, Perceptual Disorders Attention Deficit Disorders and a Reduction in Perceptual Reasoning Skills Lead also Causes Violent Tendencies Greater Impulsivity and Disruptive Classroom Behavior This Synergy Renders the Child Less Able to Compete in the Classroom and More Likely to Drop Out The Lead Poisoning Damage is also Cumulative and Affected Adults are Less Able to Compete Professionally and to hold employment, making them more likely to be unemployed or underemployed. lead exerts a downward pull on an individual's cognitive abilities over time, regardless of where they start out in life, wrote Aaron Rubin of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. As adults, these children will earn less than their unaffected compatriots, an average $90,000 less while working at lower-status jobs than their parents. A wealth of studies document that the stress of racism also exacerbates the damage wrought by the IQ loss. IQ loss has national consequences as well. Even a small IQ loss skews the distribution of mentally retarded and intellectually gifted children in an ominous manner. Using CDC data, Lanfear calculates that an average five-point drop in IQ among U.S. children will result in 3.4 million more children being intellectually disabled or mentally retarded. Simultaneously, such a seemingly small drop would reduce the number of intellectually gifted children by half and double the number of children that meet the criteria for intellectually impaired. With this in mind, Consider the stunning results of a study conducted by Harvard's David Bellinger, which shows that, as noted in the introduction, lead exposure has cost us a total of 23 million lost IQ points nationwide every year, even more than the 13 million IQ points lost to pesticide exposure, as documented by a European Union study. Flint remains embroiled in a public health emergency with high levels of lead in its water supply and in the blood of its children. But like the victims in Baltimore before them, Flint's victims have been demonized. Flint residents are charged some of the nation's highest rates and taxes for their poisoned water. And when they cannot pay, the city takes draconian legal action, sometimes forcing residents from their homes. The Genesee County Land Bank Flint's largest property owner, takes over tax-foreclosed properties, demolishes them, and orchestrates rehabilitations and sales. It is blamed by many for driving longtime Flint residents from their homes. When a journalist asked its sales manager, Phil Stair about Flint's tainted water, he responded, Well, Flint has the same problems as Detroit. Fucking niggers don't pay their bills. Believe me, I deal with them. This is nonsense. A state commissioner found that systemic racism, not African-American deadbeats, as Stare also referred to them, caused Flint's disaster. Amid the resulting outrage, Stare resigned. The price tag for replacing Flint's corroded lead pipes is now estimated at $1.5 billion, which Flint doesn't have. The Environmental Protection Agency has offered no timetable for replacing the pipes and providing potable water. So, the foreseeable future portends a city of children with lowered IQs and a community robbed of its future potential. As whistleblowing Detroit pediatrician Mona Hanna-Attisha, M.D., told the New York Times, If you were going to put something in a population to keep them down for generations to come, it would be lead. But Rosner and Markowitz point out a graver problem that extends far beyond Flint. The mix of racism and corporate greed that have put lead and other pollutants into millions of homes in the United States. The scores of endangered kids in Flint are just the tip of a vast, toxic iceberg. This iceberg encompasses the nation. Ten miles away, in Detroit. Thousands of Motor City homes still bear lead paint, and more than 1,500 children were lead poisoned in 2014. But that city only had enough money for 100 to 200 lead paint abatements annually. In Detroit, where the population is 84% black and housing is notoriously dilapidated and abandoned, 80,000 of the city's 380,000 properties are considered blighted. According to the New York Times, this creates a risky situation for children living in those homes, as well as in neighboring properties. Eight percent of children who were tested for lead poisoning in Detroit had elevated blood lead levels in 2013, greater than or equal to five micrograms per deciliter, 16 times the national average reported by the CDC and state health departments. In a national pattern, African-American children are nearly three times more likely than white ones to suffer the most highly elevated, most damaging blood-lead levels. Majority minority cities have the highest number of children with these elevated levels, although African-Americans constitute only about 13% of the U.S. population. In Savannah, Georgia, which is 57% black, 5% of children had elevated blood-lead levels ten times the national average. Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama, both of which are 50% African American, have similarly high rates of lead poisoning, three and four percent of all children, respectively. The water supplies of some Native American communities have been far more heavily poisoned than flints for a much longer time. For example, uranium mine and mill contamination renders the water of Navajo communities radioactive in New Mexico and other Western states. In 1979, Justin Garner wrote, A spill north of Church Rock, New Mexico left an immense amount of radioactive contamination that downstreamers today are currently receiving in their drinking water. A mostly Navajo community in Sanders, Arizona has been exposed to twice the legal limit allowable for uranium through their tap. The aging water delivery infrastructures of hundreds of U.S. cities, including Philadelphia and Chicago, feature lead pipes that now leach the poisonous metal, thanks to the industry's success in blocking proposed regulation in the 1920s. Throughout the nation, once pristine water sources are befouled by a poisonous brew of raw and treated sewage, industrial chemicals, animal offal and excrement, and pharmaceuticals. Although lead is the primary concern in cities like Baltimore, Flint, and East Chicago, researchers also worry that other chemicals, like total trihalomethanes, or TTHMs, and the extra fluorine that Flint pumped into its system to combat bacterial growth, are linked to sickness and higher miscarriage rates. In October 2011, in New York City, a small one-bedroom apartment in a six-story building near Fordham University and just two miles from where I lived seemed to be just what Zayma Abdul-Majid and her husband were looking for. At about $1,000 a month, it was the holy grail of NYC real estate, a clean, affordable apartment even if that apartment was in the Bronx and had to house four people, the couple and their twin one-year-olds. But the freshly whitewashed walls could not hide its downside for long. Two months after they moved in, the Abdul Majids had a rude awakening in the form of a call from their pediatrician's office. Their daughter Zoe's blood lead level was 21 micrograms per deciliter, more than four times the amount deemed by the CDC to predispose her to lowered intelligence and a heightened risk of behavioral disorders. I was shocked, said Ms. Abdul-Majid. She's starting off with a delay in her life, and it clearly wasn't her fault. Since 2004, New York City's Local Law 1 has held landlords accountable for lead contamination. As a result the rate of poisoning has fallen by 66%. But the city's worst scofflaw landlords are responsible for hundreds of violations. According to the Huffington Post, the Abdul Majid's landlord was one of the top ten in lead poison violations. These ten landlords alone were cited more than 1,000 times between November 2013 and January 2016. The city's Department of Housing Preservation and Development, HPD, issued more than 10,000 violations for dangerous lead paint conditions in apartments where young children live. Half were in just 10% of the city's zip codes, low-income neighborhoods of the Bronx, Brooklyn, Harlem, and northern Manhattan. About 8% had lead levels exceeding 15 parts per billion, and 83% of the schools in these minority areas had at least one water spigot with a lead level above the legal exposure threshold. In New York City, federal prosecutors recently opened an investigation into lead hazards found in the city's public housing. New York City breaks lead poisoning rates down by race in its reports, but its jurisdictions aren't required to report that information to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This means that no data sets exist to distinguish the differences in elevated blood lead levels among races. Moreover, many counties and municipalities don't collect or report lead poisoning data to the CDC at all. The Ghosts of Lead Smelters Past A 2001 American Journal of Public Health article revealed that when it comes to missing data on lead, Perhaps the most ominous cases are those of the 400 vanished lead smelters that operated nationwide before the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and its regulations in 1970. In 2012, environmental scientist William Ecke revealed their past existence, but we can't know how much lead they leached into the environment or how much persists. USA Today reporters tested soil at 400 sites in 13 states and found persisting lead levels that varied but were as high as 10 times the EPA hazard threshold. Although the EPA was notified, it did little to test or to warn current residents that they reside on the sites of former lead smelters. The Philadelphia EPA office responded, EPA does not notify residents of potential contamination based solely on the possibility that past industrial activities may have occurred. This type of approach would unnecessarily alarm residents and community members. In the United States, 1.8 million children live in homes with dangerously deteriorating lead paint. 52% of all residential housing units have lead paint at concentrations that may cause adverse effects in children such as alterations in heme, blood protein synthesis, and neuropsychological deficits including decreased IQ, behavioral changes, and impaired school performance. To learn what you can do to protect your family and community, refer to Chapter 6, Taking the Cure.
0: Context of White Supremacy. Gus T. Renegade. We are all done with the first audio segment when we resume For our second piece of reading, we'll pick up at the very beginning of Chapter 3, Poisoned World, the Racial Gradient of Environmental Neurotoxins. That is Chapter 3 when we resume. For the time being, the number 605-313-5164. Be code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four. Be code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate we have folks who emailed uh as well until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com if you are not able to call in, but have commentary you would like to share. Make sure I read the commentary from listeners as well. Uh, if you have thoughts, info to share, I'm so glad we got to Freddie Gray during the first audio segment because we were right on the cusp uh, last week. We got through all of that this week. Uh, folks have commentary to share. Uh, I will say, I hope folks have been able to pay attention. Uh, if you Need assistance getting your mitts on a hard copy of the book? Let me know. Although, it shouldn't be a problem. This is a like really recent book. And uh, even if you are not in the spectacular Seattle area, uh, they should have this book at your library. You might have to um, reserve it. That's what they call it. Reserve it and all that. But it shouldn't be too difficult to get a hard uh, copy of the book. Make sure if you're calling in to comment, you are... Paying attention with the reading. Uh, I think Harriet A. Washington has once again provided really quality material, so there shouldn't be one where people have not really paid attention to the reading, don't really know what we're talking about, and just want to talk about random tangents. Much obliged. Let's see. Uh, First few folks, or folks who dialed in, if you have comments, questions, thoughts to share, We'll get the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Wow, the switchboard is not. Hmm. All right, we'll see. uh, Do it again. Let's try it that way. All right, first few folks who dialed in. uh, If you have hands up, questions, comments you want to share, proceed. Maybe folks are taking a few moments to get their thoughts together. That is allowed. I will go through a few of my notes. Although, again, I generally prefer for you all to go first. If you have notes, that way you all can. Generally, I have more notes than you do, so it doesn't make a big deal if you know you share something as opposed to me going through all of my notes. Uh, let's see. Oh, well, oh, was that Ivy? Did you have something?
4: It was. Um, did you want to go with us? You were, you were in the middle of it.
0: I hadn't really uh, got to anything, so, yeah, nothing. No pressing
6: note to share.
4: Okay, because, you know, I was listening to what you were saying about, you know, how you don't really like to go first. Um, so greetings to you and greetings to all the callers on the line. Um, Speaking of notes, I am, okay, here we go. So, um, give me one second. Sorry about that. I just wanted to make sure that there would be no background noise. But um, I wanted to actually bring up something we were talking about uh, last week about it From from what I was hearing from other people, it just kind of seemed like they were saying that you know Filipinos are kind of like on the the bottom rung um of Asians, and that really doesn't seem that really doesn't seem to be the case given the the resources that they have like they're um, they're second to what is called Indian Americans which are supposed to be some sort of some some supposed to be in the Asian group. I don't know how that is. That's just very confusing. But the point is the, the Indian Americans are supposed to be number one in terms of income. And then right after that is the, um, the Filipinos and they're ahead of the, the Japanese and the Chinese, the people who are, you know, supposedly, you know, the ones that, that are perceived as smart and f- Filipinos are supposedly not seen, seen that way. And it was stated that, um, one I guess piece of evidence regarding this is that there was some Filipinos who are Filipino children who were um, getting good grades, but they weren't put in the gifting, gifted classes. That is likely sabotage. That happens to black children all the time. And they even said that because of where um, Chinese and, and Japanese people are, uh, they're, they're going to start sabotaging them as well. Um, so I, I just don't think that that's, that's evidence. Um, and also something else that was cited as evidence is that, um, Is uh,
0: is this in the book? I do remember this conversation, but like, this is, is this tangent? Like, I don't, I certainly don't remember it from this week. I certainly do remember the conversation last week, Henry in Chicago and all that. But I mean, is this, is this in
4: the book? Well, it was, um, well, um, what's her name um harriet washington was talking about um was talking about agents and their um the the sabotage because of their their um their income and how they're doing um academically and things dealing with iq and things of that nature you remember that
0: remember that last week yes ma'am
4: yeah so that's ultimately what i was addressing and i was almost done all right Okay, so I was just going to say that, um, that you know, talking about how Filipinos are looked at as gooks world, um, Jeremy Lin was called a chink, and, you know, Chinese and Japanese people and Asian people in general are are called that. Um, I wanted to ask a, a quick question because, I mean, I remember crack coming up a lot um, last week. Was that in the book? Because I don't remember.
0: It was uh, briefly – mentioned i believe i'm not even sure if it was brought up in the text Uh, i know it was mentioned uh, someone in fact i know it was mentioned they were giving credit to harriet washington for saying that they uh the whole crack babies thing was not even scientifically founded and blah 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 and that she brought that information out she does talk about that in medical apartheid different book but uh, even that was uh, she's referencing Dorothy Roberts, uh, who had that information in Killing the Black Body, which is an older book, uh, came out before Medical Apartheid. She uh, is one of the earlier scholars, black female at that, uh, to talk about that work. And Harriet A. Washington was citing her work in Medical Apartheid. So it was mentioned last week. I'm not quite sure if it was mentioned in this book because that would not. Well, I guess it would. I think she probably did get a brief mention with the. Um, the propensity for making up data, scientific data to suggest that there's something mentally defective about black people when there's no evidence to back it. So I suspect there probably was a brief mention.
4: Okay. I I thought so. So the quick thing that I wanted to say upon that, just like even when I brought up last week that it wasn't about, you know, crack versus cocaine in terms of incarceration and things of that nature. It doesn't really matter if um, crack is more, addictive i guess than cocaine i haven't seen a difference either way but even if it was that doesn't matter as well as whether or not um crack babies were really going to do this that or the other none of that matters because again the majority of people on crack are white and that has always been the case so it's really about even if there was any merit to any of these claims that white people had they did not enforce the laws accordingly because if they would have it would have been white people going to jail rather than black people going to jail, just like white people ain't going to jail for heroin now. um Moving on to personal responsibility, it's so interesting that the, the, the white people always emphasize that, but they want victims of racism to actually take personal responsibility for racism. Um, and white people, like Harriet Washington said, that, that black people are killed like nine times more than than white people or than everyone else or something like that. That's actually not true. Um, White people are killed by police more than anyone, um, or at least in terms of the the public numbers that they have out. That's not really the issue. The issue is, if anything, black people are more murdered by cops than anyone. (laughs) White people, they they may be killed, but that's because they were um, assaulting cops or killing them Or something of that nature Um, because in fact um, let me see people assaulting cops 64% of those people are white and 50% of, of cop killers are white so that's ultimately what that's about and it's and the last thing I guess that I wanted to say is that this issue about who's armed and who's not and things of that nature yes more white people are armed, but it doesn't matter if you're armed or not because you shouldn't be murdered and you shouldn't be killed for being armed. That's that's not the issue. It's whether or not you did something incorrect or you threatened someone's life or whatever the case may be. So this emphasis on being armed or not is really just propaganda to to demonize weapons because white people want to take guns out of people's hands just in general so that they can control them more. And I'll mute my line. Thanks, Gus.
0: Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Ivy. Uh, She did not mention Crack Babies directly in this book, but she is going to mention Dorothy Roberts killing the black body in two chapters. We will not get there this week, maybe next week, but she is. I'm not sure if she's going to bring up Crack Babies uh, or not then, Uh, but no, she has not mentioned it in the book to this point. Uh, someone brought that up, though, from medical apartheid. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have comments to share, one should be open. Proceed. Captain Greetings, Thomas, in New York.
3: Greetings, Thus. Uh, I like this book. Uh, very good. Um, De- Baltimore and Detroit, two major chocolate cities. Um, not shocked at all by the information that's coming out about both of them. Um, people being poisoned. Uh, man, the auto industry seems to be totally exiled from whatever's going on in Flint. I mean, um, they contaminated that water. They profited hundreds of billions of dollars and just walked away um, and left the politicians, most of them black, to deal with the with the problem they caused. And um, somehow, none of them have pointed out that the auto industry should be um, somewhat responsible. Um, but on um, Baltimore, Detroit, it um, kind of reminds me. We read that book about New Orleans, you know, just hearing some of the backstories of the things that took place in the city before Katrina. It was just like, wow. You know, um, and I also a city that I, I don't know if she's going to Memphis mention, mention it in a book, but um, when you look at major chocolate cities, uh, right above Baltimore is Memphis and um, they have about 30,000 more people, same demographics almost to the to the teeth. Um, just um, I just know that there's some environmental racism going on there. Um, more people die from lead probably than any other thing in this country. Um, when you think about it, just the bullets alone, I mean, but paint the water, leading you to an early demise probably. Um, long-term illnesses, dialysis is heavy in the black community. People with lost limbs, you know, just wonder how much of this stuff participated in that happening. Because, um, you know, it's not from a war, you know, with most of them. It's, you know, something else. Um, got lead paint chips and lead dust particles flying in your apartment. And they send in people to train you on how to use stick and span. Like, that's white supremacy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're going to train you how to use stick and span because this is your fault. And um, it'll just take $10 billion to fix the problem, $10 billion, um, a mere $10 billion that doesn't even really exist that they just print up out of thin air when they want to. But nope, we don't got that for y'all. You know, we got um, we got $11 billion to build some jails for y'all, Though, but not $10 billion to clear up your lead poisoning that's affecting generation after generation. Because, God forbid, we can't say that y'all ain't lazy and stupid because we're making you that way with this Leah King. Um, social economics, S E S I I hate that term, social, y'all, or social, when they put that in front of something. And you had that guest a couple of weeks ago talking about social justice. Oh, my God, it comes straight out the UN. I wish black people stopped putting that word in front of stuff, man. You either for justice or you not, you know know um, that that's a white supremacist term to get away from talking about racism and to get it to talking about poverty and you know it's uh, some other mere uh, um numbers that they don't configure it's the problem. It's not the fact that we're doing this to you on purpose because you're black and I meet my line thank you guys
0: social justice crusader Thomas in New York uh let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we have missed you totally proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Your volume is a little low. If you could uh, speak up or maybe get a little bit closer to your receiver, maybe both. Is this better? Yes, sir.
5: All right. Uh, greetings, callers, uh, listeners. Greetings us again, and thank you for the platform. Um, this book is, is, very interesting. I do have her prior book, um, Medical Apartheid, and I just, I haven't been able to finish that. It's been a little bit of a tough read. I need to probably go back and get into it after reading some of this content, though. Um, Page 94, where Needleman's, where they asked Needleman, um, when asked why he thought the government was reluctant to spend the funds necessary to completely eliminate lead from housing, he replied, well, to begin with, it's a black problem. And, um, I was kind of surprised to hear that. I didn't think that he was going to be that direct and state that, but I'm surprised he even said that he didn't say it was act of racism, white supremacy, but I'm surprised he even brought that out to the attention. Um, the other aspect, I think the most, the other callers mentioned this too, is the kind of blame the victim scenario that we see routinely practiced in other areas of people activity. And this one being, you know, with, with health instead of parents um, instead parents of poisoned children were told that it was their responsibility to keep their homes clean and free from lead dust and paint chips. It's really uh, the same across the board when it comes to uh, if somebody gets pulled over and a child gets harassed, it's the child was out of line. They were, talking funny or overly aggressive, just blame the victim scenario with every aspect and people area, pay areas of people activity. Um, moreover, um, somebody spoke about the financial aspect of it, I think, which was important. They were willing to spend the money on jails than in actually investing it into cleaning out the lead. Um, and on page 96, um, if rich white kids were getting poison, there would be a law on the books that says no lead in houses. Um, there's a real good point there, um, by that, um, lawyer, Brian Brown. One of the things that I, I liked about this chapter was her at the end, her pointing out the solutions and pointing to the further chapter. If you need to actually go and look at that, which I will as well as a resident of Brooklyn, um, and Thomas in New York mentioned something already. Socioeconomic status. I completely agree with him on that. I think it was a. It's a bit of a distraction. Kind of throws everything off by saying that. Uh, and and the I believe a journalist. This is on page one oh seven. A journalist was asked um, asked the sales manager of Phil Stair about Flint's tainted water. He responded, well, Flint has the same problems as Detroit. Fucking niggas don't pay their bills. Believe me, I deal with them. Um, just blatant outright um, racism, white supremacy right there. Just uh, it, It's clear and evident that this company has a full intent to take over as much property as possible while kicking black people out, dislocating them as, as, um, as Dr. Um, as Nellie Fuller Jr. Would say. Um, and this is, I think one of the key aspects of this whole process of contaminating the water and making everybody sick. And I'll say this on a personal note, the area that I'm, that I live in, in Brooklyn is being gentrified. And one of the residents came to me and immediately spoke to me and said what has been occurring since white people have been moving into the area, they're pulling the pipes out of the ground. And he said, this is not something new. Ever since they've been coming for the last eight to 10 years, you'll be seeing more of these const- more construction workers working on the roads, pulling the pipes out of the ground and putting in new pipes because the pipes that have been here have been contaminated for years. Just um, a thought I'd like to throw out or situation, I should say. Uh, Thank you for the time. I'll mute my line. Hmm.
0: Bit of uh, poetry at the end. Much, much obliged. Good, sir. Uh, Other folks that we have missed completely, if you have a hand up, comments, questions to add, Oh man. Uh, let's see. Other folks that dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Greeting. Pardon
8: Greetings, everybody.
0: Um, and hello,
8: Gus. I'm glad that the gentleman mentioned that about the pipe, because I have a friend that lives in a part of um, New Orleans called Pontchartrain Park. And um, I went to visit and he's like uh the city um it just sent the notice out however they sent it out they're going to be um fixing on all this area back here the um i think the sewage and the street itself you know well obviously if they're going to um fix that uh sewage or the piping you know they're going to have to fix the street and um you're right like when it's like, it reminds me of sundown towns as well. So white people are finally moving back into urban areas, like um, the author said, and they're going to make sure it's hospitable, inhabitable, and healthy enough for them to live there. And um I'm just, what troubles me when I would listen to this chapter just now, and it's not our fault because we're victims. It's just um I kind of do pray that we would catch on and admit it to ourselves as victims that we're being victimized in this way and not just chalk it as, oh, well, this is a poor neighborhood or whatever. Because it's obvious that this is slow genocide, methodical genocide. And then the other thing I have to say to everyone or about everyone classifying as white, you know, what does it say about you all? If, if it's about the lack of information or education or whatever that has to do with brain function and yours, you put, they purport that their brain function is so much higher. If that's the case, then why are you victimizing people that are not as smart as you? That means the burden is actually on you to protect these individuals and make sure that they're not mistreated because according to you, they don't know any better. And I'll mute my line
0: for now. Much obliged, Irie, uh, other folks that we've missed totally. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus.
2: Greetings, everyone. Uh, the, the book in its descriptions is absolutely fantastic. Uh, as far as inform, informing information is concerned. Uh, uh, what the thought in my mind is, is how scientifically militarily, uh, concise, uh, the system of racism, white supremacy is, uh, they create areas, uh, that, Percentage-wise, is going to be uh, overwhelmingly non-white, and in this part of the world, non-white black people, and it's going to be in environments where uh, it's the production of things that are not healthy. Uh, so, in turn, uh, on one hand. Uh, the system of racism, white supremacy globally, uh, sustains a large amount of wealth at the expense of non-white people. Uh, garbage such as even the you know even plants where animals are getting killed, the blood and everything else have to go somewhere. More than likely, it's going to come in contact with the people who stay in the area. In this particular case. The writer is talking about lead. Uh, the poison has to go somewhere. And it's going to eventually come in contact with the people that stay in the area. And in turn, as a result, as a result, you're going to have damaged children. Damaged children turn into damaged older people. You notice I didn't say men and women. Uh, and in turn, along with it, uh, as uh, a physician would say, the, I think the terms of the, psych, the psychotropic drug industry, which is global, it becomes a very powerful and wealthy uh, uh, expense at the expense of non white black people. Along with it, the other industries, such as uh, uh, well, uh, the book that she wrote prior, "Medical Apartheid," as well as uh, "quote unquote" law enforcement, becomes huge uh, within this industry at the expense of black bodies. This is basically what I'm computing in my mind based on this reader's, I mean, this writer's uh, description. Uh, as dumb as I am, I, I I can understand it. I can understand on on what she is actually describing, and primarily she's she's primarily only talking about one form of poisoning, lead, and we all know that there's even much more that exists in this huge white supremacist industry that is actually it has global a global uh interest uh with other white people around the world and uh awesome book i'm i'm just absorbed the I, I would say probably the only the only uh, some of the people that probably wouldn't like the book is because of as of yet uh well it probably would be kind of it, they probably have a feeling that it's depressing uh, but i don't look at it that way myself personally i look at it as as informative and something that I need to to have an understanding of and pay attention to, and uh, I like the book for that for that reasoning. Uh, also, I also would join in and say that that whole idea about the term "social economic" is not speaking directly to uh, the uh, the issue uh, we're talking about—the global system of and white supremacy. And we need to get used to defining that term and voicing that term, uh, especially with things that we are learning in this book. Thank you.
0: Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, Anybody else? Comments that we have missed totally? Can I be heard? Uh, Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir.
9: Uh, greetings Gus and greetings to all the callers and listeners Um, interesting book Um, on page 90 uh, it says that being arrested or even convicted does not mean that a person has committed a crime neither is an arrest racially equitable response to behavior for example 92% of people arrested for marijuana possession in Baltimore in 2010 were African American but this is because more black Baltimoreans are more than five point six more times arrested for possession of marijuana than whites. Now I read that and was kind of thinking about, uh, the recent, uh, the recent, uh, activation of, or the recent, uh, uh, law that went into effect, uh, at the beginning of this year in Illinois in regards to marijuana, uh, legalization. And I still feel like not only is that a chemical warfare against us, I still feel that it is a criminal. Uh, It is still, even though they've legalized it, I predict that the the crime rates of marijuana is still not going to go down in regards to uh, non-white black people. Uh, I still feel that marijuana is still illegal uh, uh, federally. So I still feel like there'll be more uh, black people put into jail uh, on federal charges for marijuana than anything. Um, on page 97, uh, they were talking about the, uh, criminalizing the parents for lead poisoning victims. Uh, it, 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 it is just crazy when you think about that because these parents are the same victims of lead poisoning. So how do you criminalize the parents, uh, for allowing their children or quote unquote, lot, you know, so-called allowing their children to be lead poisoned when these are the same parents who are being lead poisoned as well. So, uh, blaming the victim, uh, 2.0 was the appropriate title, uh, of this, uh, a previous caller mentioned, uh, on page 107 in regards to, uh, Phil stairs, who was the sales manager, uh, of the, of the Flint's tainted water, where he said, uh, uh, the fucking niggers don't pay their bills. Believe me, I deal with them. You know, uh, you always say, make it plain, um, uh, racist. Uh, the best races are the ones who just make it plain. So he made it plain. Uh, He made it simple that uh, this water was intentionally poisoned uh, because uh, the people in Flint are black. So um, I can uh, appreciate that. And uh, socioeconomic, I I agree with the previous callers uh, in regards to uh, that being kind of confusing in regards to racism, but what is also interesting is on the back of the book um, it has a uh, it has a couple of quips on here it says "Did you know and one of the one of the things that it says on the back of the book is middle class african American households with incomes between fifty thousand and sixty thousand live in neighborhoods that are more polluted than those of the very poor white households with incomes below $10,000. So I think I'll leave it right there and I'll mute my line.
0: That's like trailer parks that unless I'm misinformed, that means if you are colored and you make between 50 and $60,000, they will treat you a little bit worse than they treat the white people who have trailer parks. That's uh, class, what they'll call it. Class, yes. Poor white people got it bad. Yeah. Yeah. The poor white people don't have it bad as any of the colored folk, regardless of how much money you have. Uh, I don't think we missed anyone, uh, but the number, 605. 313-5164, 313-5164, code 564-943-POUND, press star 61, if you would like to participate. I'll get in a few of my notes quickly. They said uh, they had so many studies, love it. They assessed 300 variables including blood, lead, and blood lead and found that childhood blood lead was the single most predictive factor for disciplinary problems and juvenile crime. It was also the fourth largest predictor of adult crime. That right there should even give a totally different sense of pause when they talk about school-to-prison pipeline and we can predict by age three whether or not little Jamal is going to jail well I guess you can if you got all the data you already know we got all kinds of chemical and biological warfare schemes cooked up by the time we didn't stuff those lead, paints on, uh, lead paint chips uh, on them for the first eight years oh yeah we already know it doesn't have anything to do with you know you teaching them or reading anything else we already got it this planned out uh, let's see the next one she says especially for black and brown boys oh wait a minute she's She she said, especially for African-American boys and men whose behaviors are more strictly scrutinized and judged than those of whites. That, to me, sounds like institutionalized black misandry. I don't know what would be a better definition, but that would be it right there. Next, she says. Most of the convictions disproved by DNA evidence involved black and brown. most of the convictions disproved by DNA evidence involved African American men wrongfully convicted of assaulting white women they feverish insert cowbell as well Uh, let's see when I think a few of you mentioned uh, Needleman he's doing this his studies on land interestingly and how it impacts language we spend so much time uh, talking about the importance of words definitions, language, that that is a major component of this problem. And the first part of this book is dealing with a chemical and biological component, a weapon of war that disrupts a lot of black children's ability to speak and use language in a correct manner. And that whites have been observing and studying this for decades, way before Freddie Gray was even born. Uh, but Needleman saying that this is a, bri- a black problem—that's not true. This is a white problem. It could be said the victims are black. That could be said, but this is not a black problem. The black—and that happens on a regular basis—where it gets stated in such a way where it's articulated, where it's still blaming the victim. This is not a black problem. This is a General Motors problem. This is a white people problem. Even in not wanting to implement his solution, ten billion and I thought of Dr. Welsing so much. She used to say that all the time you can't have we don't have communities, but you can't have uh, families, and you know you have to have people that are working, particularly you have to have fathers, all that about who's most likely to be scrutinized, all that you have to have fathers who have jobs uh, in order to be in a household in a competent, effective manner. This could be the job program like, hey, we'll go out and you can help your so-called communities thrive and be better and help get rid of these poisons. You'll learn some skills might be able to something where you can end up growing that into a business uh, beyond that. Where you could do this, do this in, in other areas and figure out other means of repairing upkeep on houses. Oh, pfft, we don't want to do that. Help these coons. No way. They what do you go. They're niggers. They're ever nigger. We're not doing anything to give them any sort of entrepreneurial startup crackheads they already think uh prince george they've talking about maryland prince george's county is right there where they got black people doing well scholarly in school ah, their brains seem to be working too well we're gonna go investigate see if they're cheating and see if we can slip some lead on them too uh let's see Two of every three poisoned children in Baltimore are living in the same pre-1950 rental homes that Needleman's plan sought to ab- abate that system of white supremacy racism where there was a plan that could have got rid of this 30 years ago. Nah. We want these negros in the exact same spot that their great-grandparents were in, being poisoned just like they were. Generate, what is it? Cumulative damage. She said that a lot in Chapter 2. Uh let's see. Love it, she pointed out with Freddie Gray Uh blah, 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 and Corn Goins uh Gain uh Gain, sorry. Uh in some newspaper accounts of his killing Freddie Gray, I was surprised to read vague speculation that these lead poisoning victims might have helped bring about their own deaths because of unspecified behavioral problems that are often linked to lead exposure. No such behaviors had been documented in them during the events. And this speculative claim recalls the blame the victim indictments of parents by lead based industries. Loved it. And I do remember reports like that saying, oh, yeah, that's why he had that wild behavior. Maybe that's why he ran. You know, his eyes were darting and reckless eyeballing and such. Maybe that's blaming the victim once again. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I thought this was so important. Our given our current president, he said the the rat and rotund infested Baltimore when he was talking about Representative Cummings, she writes uh, such demonization of the poisoning is not new in their book deceit and denial the deadly politics of industrial pollution gerald markowitz and david rosner recount how a lead industry representative referred to the lead poisoned children of baltimore as little rats and their mothers as over fecund imbeciles i had to look that word up over fecund what does that mean Oh, that means you're ripe. You're going to have a whole lot of those little dark babies. Keep it plain. Nothing makes it more flagrant than that. What we think about you are the man not. You're not even in the same species. We just think of you as little rats. Same thing our president said, rat and rodent infested. Talking about you, Cummings, you're one of the rats that's infesting Maryland. Uh, And then, yeah, having all these children. Of course, we should be dumping all kinds of toxins and chemicals, anything to get them spayed and neutered so this infestation doesn't spread beyond Queen Mary's land. Next. She said at least 37,500 Baltimore children, nearly all of them black and brown. So, she didn't say... At least 37,500 Baltimore children, nearly all of them black, were diagnosed with lead poisoning between 1993 and 2015 like Gray and his sisters. But only one in five black children is now tested. Gross demonstration of white supremacy racism in Baltimore. Let's see. just want to make sure I get in. Yes, the situation in Flint is because the Negras don't pay their bills. Yes. And he was, they said he resigned. Uh, after the outrage, I would be willing to wager a considerable amount uh, that well, I'm trying to make sure I get his full name. Stare, I'm not seeing the Oh, there it is, Phil Stare. I am sure that Mr. Uh, Phil Stare... Uh, has transferred and is doing quite well and still holds the exact same opinion of negros. Uh, I will leave it there, I think. Oh, wait a minute. I had higher miscarriage rates. That's where I'll leave it. They were talking about Flint. And they said uh, the extra fluorine, extra chlorine that Flint pumped into its system to combat bacterial growth are linked to sickness and higher miscarriage rates not by accident now you just heard him say you got all those rats talking about the black people and over fecund black moms having all these nigger babies of course some of this would end up curtailing the number of black children being born not to mention we're gonna you know contaminate all the ones that do end up making it but oh yeah we'll reduce some of the ones that end up coming on the planet to begin with anything to make sure we don't have too many dark babies as always you yeah. Whoopee, more of that. Anything else folks need to get in before we get to audio segment number two? Yes, I have a question.
4: Go uh, ahead.
2: Thank you. Uh, I have a question. Uh, isn't uh, the globally uh, popularized young person, first name, Greta, I don't know, a last name, isn't this subject
0: is something that she
5: talks about?
0: Yes, sir. Although I don't know if she talks about it through the lens of white supremacy, racism, but yes, sir. Exactly.
2: What? Exactly. Although that's the point I was making.
0: She might. It wouldn't surprise me if she's able to throw in some white privilege, this and social justice, that and marginalized communities like, oh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. She she probably will add that to her repertoire if she hasn't already uh, shortly. So, yeah, <laughs> stay tuned for that. One.
2: I, yeah, I haven't heard it yet, but I'll be listening.
0: Thank you. Uh, Ivy, did you have a uh, comment you were going to question?
4: Oh uh, yeah. Um, I wanted to say that, um, uh, she said that the, the, we are getting arrested more for drugs, but our, I guess drug use and possession and things of that nature are similar to white. It's so interesting that that ha- that that's been, that that's been said a lot that it's similar. The same thing with, um, I think, uh, Michelle Alexander said that, um, one time as well. It's actually not similar at all. Um, there is a gulf in between the drug use and drug possession between black people and white people. Um, white people are over 70% of drug users, um, and people who possess drugs and drug dealers. Um, black people are like barely anywhere from 20 and 30%. So it's, it's not similar. Um, and she also said something about how our i guess aggression and things of that nature well, I think she said that our 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 aggression and being armed and things of that nature are not uh are not above white the same thing i would say in that situation not only is it not above them um it's there's a gulf in between that uh, i mean I, I cited the the statistics earlier um so i wanted to to make that distinction like we there there's no comparison and when criminality is talked about for for, that's another thing the majority of criminals are white um anywhere 70 80 90 percent um so there, there there needs to be that distinction and it needs to be I think it needs to be called out um the criminality of whites and 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 not be downplayed and I'm not saying that Miss um, Washington is trying to do that, but I'm just saying I just see that a lot in general. And the last thing that I wanted to say is that I thought um, what Irie said was was very constructive about. Um, I thought it was brilliant as well. Um, the insight that she had when she when she pointed out that if you don't say you know we're dumber, then ultimately you're um, you're taking advantage of, of people that don't know any better. Like that was that was just so brilliant, and it just shows the savagery the savagery of uh these uh these uh white people i know i'll, I'll mute my line thanks everyone thanks guys
0: much obliged we will pause here and get back on our counter-racist grind with a terrible thing to waste uh, again we are picking up right at the beginning of chapter three we will not finish this chapter today but we'll make a nice dent If you have other questions for the first portion of the reading, make a note. We will have ample time uh, once we finish with the second audio segment. Again, this is Harriet A. Washington, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number two.
6: Chapter three, Poisoned World, the Racial Gradient of Environmental Neurotoxins. I grew up an army brat which made moving to a new military base, a new town, and sometimes a new country every few years the norm. But I was anchored by the adopted hometowns of Croton-on-Hudson, New York, where my maternal grandparents lived, and, 30 miles away, the Harlem home of my aunt and uncle. Whenever I visited Croton, I'd join playmates and cousins in daily routines of outdoor games like hide-and-go-seek, skating, and cycling as we ranged for miles across vast neighborhood gardens and the pristine surrounding woods, collecting butterflies, tadpoles, and less savory samples of nature. But Harlem's big-city sophistication contrasted sharply with my grandparents' sleepy, exurban town. Flitting to museums, planetariums, art galleries, films, and shopping by subway and bus ruled my days as we walked blocks on streets choked by fuel emissions in that pre lead Abatement era. My Harlem playmates had a familiarity with culture that eclipsed that of Croton, or for that matter, on Army bases. Eventually, I realized that they had something else I hadn't encountered in Croton. Asthma. It's purely anecdotal, but I cannot recall a single Harlem playmate including my cousins, who didn't suffer bouts of wheezing, carrying an inhaler, or tell of frightening nights spent struggling to breathe while suffering from coughing, chest tightness, and narrowing of their airways. Every child in the 30-story building didn't have asthma, of course, but it was commonplace, sometimes culminating in a white-knuckle ride to Harlem Hospital, ten blocks down the street. As a child... I made no connection between the plight of my asthmatic playmates and the fact that the 146th Street Depot and its hydrocarbon-laden emissions were right across the street from my aunt's building, which is within a large African-American residential complex. And this depot, now named the Mother Claire Hale Depot, wasn't alone. Nine of New York City's ten bus depots were located in Harlem. Asthma is still common in many African-American communities, partly because the oil and natural gas industries, located predominantly in or near them, violate EPA air quality standards for smog due to natural gas emissions. Dirty emissions from power plants combine with motor vehicle pollution to form ozone smog, which triggers respiratory ailments, including asthma. In this dense city of 8.5 million people, Harlem, the South Bronx, and other heavily industrialized ethnic neighborhoods are marked by higher asthma rates and lower vigilance over environmental pollution. This results in more than 138,000 asthma attacks among New York schoolchildren and at least 100,000 missed days of school each year. The CDC reports that the combined national annual cost of asthma includes 10 million lost school days, 1.8 million emergency room visits, 15 million outpatient visits, and nearly 500,000 hospitalizations, to say nothing of its $14.5 billion cost in 2000. African Americans and Hispanic Americans are three to four times more likely than whites to be hospitalized or die from asthma. One would think these airborne risks would strike more democratically, given that we all must breathe. But do we really breathe the same air? For that matter, do we all share the same environment? Across the nation, the befouled air hangs heaviest over communities of color. University of Minnesota researchers Found that about 69% of Hispanic children, 68% of Asian American children, and 61% of African American children live in areas that exceed EPA ozone standards, compared with 51% of white children. African Americans and other people of color breathe 38% more polluted air than whites and are also exposed to 46% more nitrogen oxide than whites. More than 60,000 chemicals were registered for commercial use in the United States by the 1970s. Most, as noted in Chapter 2, without human safety tests. They found their way into a dizzying array of consumer products, from mattresses to computers to cookware to flame-resistant sleepwear and plastic sippy cups for babies. Today, the United States has safety data for only a fraction of the 85,000-plus commercially used chemicals. The European Union puts the global number at 145,000. Public health studies show that exposures to these are now ubiquitous. Among the many undertested chemicals pervading our nations are manganese, high levels of fluoride, the pesticide chlorpyrifos, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, DDT, tetrachloroethylene, TCE, and the polybrominated diphenyl ethers, PBDEs, used as flame retardants, all of which epidemiologists finger as developmental neurotoxicants, neurological poisons that harm the brain. These six pollutants are especially dangerous to the developing nervous systems of fetuses and very young children, and are prime drivers of intelligence loss. Even exceedingly low concentrations of some toxic chemicals can have disastrous effects on intelligence and behavior, especially if exposure occurs during early brain development. For many of these chemicals, there is no apparent threshold or safe level, even though government safety standards and testing protocols assume that there is. African Americans and other people of color are 79% more likely than white U.S. residents to live in neighborhoods where these potent brain thieves emitted from bus depots, lead smelters, petrochemical plants, refineries, garbage dumps, incinerators, and even nearby highways pose the greatest health danger. This level of disparate exposure characterizes African-American communities in 19 states compared to Hispanic neighborhoods in 12 states and Asian enclaves in 7 states. More than 68% of African-Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant, the distance within which the maximum effects of the smokestack plume tend to occur. Compared with the 56% of whites, and 39% of Latinos who live in such proximity to a coal fired power plant. As longtime Norco, Louisiana resident Margie Richard told sociology professor Robert D. Bullard, I am surrounded by 27 petrochemical companies and oil refineries. My house is located only three meters away from the 15 acre Shell chemical plant. We are not treated as citizens with equal rights according to U.S. law and international human rights law. Houston, we have a problem. Bullard, director of the Environmental Justice Resource Center at Clark Atlanta University, has written a dozen books about environmental health in America, including his 1990 classic, Dumping in Dixie, Race, Class, and Environmental Quality. Because of his analyses, we first learned that race, not income, is the single most important factor in the sighting of many sources of brain-harming environmental exposures, a revelation which spurred development of the environmental justice movement. African-American households with incomes between $50,000 and $60,000 live in neighborhoods that are more polluted than neighborhoods in which white households with incomes below $10,000 live, he wrote. Bullard then distinguished professor at Texas Southern University and founder of the EPA Office of Environmental Equity, explained that the NIMBY, not-in-my-backyard, sentiment regarding toxic sites that many Americans share, has another face. Lulu's. Race is still the potent factor for predicting where locally unwanted land uses, Lulu's, go. A lot of people say it's class but race and class are intertwined. Bullard adds that African Americans' own ability to invoke NIMBY is hampered by their relatively low home ownership rate. This disparity is driven by racial discrimination, including mortgage redlining. In 1999, he wrote, Only 46% of blacks in the nation owned their homes, compared with 73% of whites. Prior to Bullard's work, no rigorous studies by scholars had examined the connection between race and toxic environmental sites. Bullard first demonstrated the primacy of the race connection when he conducted the first U.S. investigation of race and the placement of noxious waste sites. In 1983, the report based on that study, Solid Waste Sites and the Black Houston Community, determined that all five of that city's garbage dumps, six of its eight garbage incinerators, and three of its four privately owned landfills were located in African-American neighborhoods, although only 25% of the city's population was black. In 1979, Bullard and his wife, attorney Linda McKeever Bullard, sued to stop the siting of yet another municipal landfill in Houston's suburban Northwood Manor neighborhood. Except for the fact that it was over 82% African American, this suburban middle class community was an unlikely location for a garbage dump, illustrating that African American neighborhoods, middle class and poor alike, were preferential toxic waste sites. Bean v. Southwestern Waste Management Inc., which charged race based environmental discrimination, was the first suit of its kind in the United States, as citizens contested the siting of public facilities in their ethnically distinct communities or neighborhoods. Without a doubt, this was a form of apartheid, where whites were making decisions, and black people, brown people, and people of color, including American Indians on reservations, had no seat at the table, summarized Bullard. But the courts decided against the plaintiffs, noting, an intent to discriminate must be demonstrated. Decisions that may appear poorly based to some people are not necessarily unconstitutional or illegal. The Supreme Court decided a series of similar cases, including Washington v. Davis, 1976, and Arlington Heights v. Metropolitan Housing Corp., 1977, each time maintaining that demonstrating a racially disproportionate impact was not enough. To win, complainants must prove an intent to discriminate based on race. This requirement, that the injured communities show intent, presented a much higher hurdle than demonstrating the foreseeable disparate impact on ethnic communities. Many saw it as a serious blow to attempts to hold municipal governments and polluters accountable for environmental poisoning of communities of color. But Bullard and other activists he inspired were not deterred. Why in toxic sighting is the disparity so often characterized as being driven by economics or class? This may reflect discomfort with acknowledging U.S. racial harms and race in American culture. But there's also another factor, missing national data. It is easier for many to assuage guilt by entertaining the concept of poisoning hazards stratified by income than by race, because the latter would constitute racism, which evokes feelings of shame in many. Moreover, some definitions of socioeconomic strata include education, which serves to ascribe risk to the undereducated, a subtle form of victim-blaming. If studies do not investigate race in the context of environmental hazard placement, it's easier to ignore the phenomenon of race-based citing. If it's not studied, it can't be quantified. As a result, studies tend to focus on environmental hazard placement in the context of class. Bullard explained to me that funders simply don't fund studies of race and environmental exposure, so they don't get done. When the epidemiology of race as a driver of environmental exposure rarely enters the canon, race as a risk factor becomes invisible. Moreover, the focus on socioeconomics in opposition to race is compounded by the mercurial concept of race in popular culture and expression, including within science. Many of us have been taught to think of race as a fixed, genetically mediated, biological characteristic of humans. However, race is chiefly a social category that encompasses what is commonly referred to as ethnicity, common geographic origins, ancestry, family patterns, cultural norms and traditions, and the social history of specific groups, explains Professor David R. Williams of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Medical Journal articles and reports that refer to race rarely define it. And when they do, the definitions are inconsistent and vary in their validity. The same is true of government health information sources. For example, Williams points out that racial categories have changed with every census. Furthermore, data on race are collected inconsistently. When race is ignored, economics is focused upon even if race is the more predictive variable. Evaluating the nature of the harms done by pollutants is even more complex than determining the relative roles of race and economics. The work of two scientific disciplines is key to analyzing environmental harms to health, toxicology and epidemiology. Toxicologists use tools like cell cultures and animal models that mimic human disease to test and to tease out the effects of poisons. They seek to control for or eliminate confounding factors like different diets, genetic susceptibility, and even other environmental exposures in order to characterize the nature and strength of a pollutant's health effects. Epidemiologic studies can identify associations between exposure and harm, but single correlations do not rise to the level of proof. Multiple well-conducted studies that point to the same culprit, however, can lend power to these correlations. We often hear this criticism summarized as correlation does not establish causation. But what does? The answer varies, but to prove that a pathogen causes a disease, for example, scientists no longer rely on the Pat formulae of old such as the German physician Robert Koch's oft-invoked postulates. His tenets hold that pathogens responsible for a disease must be isolated from the diseased host and grown in pure culture, cause the disease when a pure culture of the bacteria is inoculated into a susceptible host, and be recoverable from the experimentally infected host. We now know that not every pathogen can be grown in culture, that there are not good animal models for every disease, that not every infected person grows ill, and that even harmless bacteria can sicken the immunocompromised or people made susceptible by trauma or surgery that permits bacteria access to their viscera. Today, we must rely upon sophisticated new tools in establishing causality. Life and Death Along the Fence Line Not all the deadly clouds hover over crowded cities like New York, Los Angeles, and Houston. They also assault suburban and rural fence line communities that abut toxic spewing industries, chemical dump sites, and Superfund sites. According to a 2014 report, Who's in Danger? A Demographic Analysis of Chemical Disaster Vulnerability Zones the percentage of African Americans in the fence line zones near chemical plants is 75% greater than for the United States as a whole. And the percentage of Latinos is 60% greater. These fence line communities are most often home to people of color, but they rarely receive the media attention of love canal and they are not always poor. Middle-class African Americans are far more likely than their white peers to live surrounded by belching factories and plumes from dump sites. Airborne exposures are everywhere, but they concentrate in ethnic enclaves. As usual, race, rather than poverty, dictates the location of Superfund sites, dirty industries, and their ilk. Triggered by their proximity to polluting industry and dump sites, African Americans and Hispanics the largest minority groups in the United States, suffer triple the U.S. asthma death rate for whites. We know that dust mites, pets, tobacco smoke, cockroaches, and mold are among the risk factors for asthma, but poor external air quality drives not only asthma, but also cancer rates, which are higher among African American and Hispanic populations. Noxious airborne toxins inflame blood vessels, including those in the lungs, which produce life-threatening respiratory disease. Rampant brain damage strikes adults and children alike thanks to airborne heavy metals like lead and mercury, as well as hydrocarbons in fuel exhausts and industrial emissions. These directly threaten intelligence by impairing neurological function. And as if all this were not dire enough, I was surprised to learn from global studies that the asthma driven by pollution itself causes a loss of intelligence and a reduction in IQ. Losing Breath and Brain The Scourge of Air Pollution In relatively affluent and white areas, policing of the environment is visibly stringent. In wealthy white neighborhoods of New York City, trash collection is frequent and complete and even noise and pet pollution is diminished by signs citing high fines for horn blowing, pet droppings, and dumping. These are warnings that do not appear in areas of the city populated by the poor and people of color. Disproportionate risks for communities of color hang in the very air. Our vulnerable brains are awash in chemical threats, but national data tell us that a largely invisible, intangible culprit tops the list of hazards air pollution its toxic components damage even our intelligence lowering our IQs these communities are far from alone the World Health Organization WHO found that more than four of every five urbanites on the planet most in the developing world live in neighborhoods where air quality falls below minimal health standards cities like Karachi Lagos, and Beijing are notorious for their visible smog, which shrouds their citizens in a witch's brew of poisonous chemicals and brain-draining particles. But the relatively clean air of the United States also features plumes of pollution that impair health. According to Nature, air pollution kills 55,000 Americans annually. An October 2017 report in The Lancet identified air pollution as the number one cause of pollution-related illness and death worldwide. Gases like carbon monoxide, CO, sulfur dioxide, SO2, nitrogen dioxide, NO2, and ozone, O3, are one component of air pollution. Particulate matter, vanishingly tiny suspended solids that threaten human well-being, is another. The developing brains of children are the most dramatically injured because they have a greater lung surface area relative to their body size, giving them a greater relative exposure to noxious gases and suspended particles than adults. Fetuses and infants fare worst of all. African-American asthma rates are driven in large part by living, working, and studying in toxics-laden environments. The greatest proportion of pollution-exposed African Americans live within half a mile of the active oil wells, gas wells, and processing plants of Texas, Ohio, and California. The next highest proportion lives in Louisiana, Pennsylvania, and Oklahoma, where industries violate the often inadequate EPA standards for air quality. Doris Brown, M.D., President of the National Medical Association, told NBC News that the effects of this pollution include 138,000 asthma attacks annually in school-aged children. It's a significant problem, and we should all be concerned by these health disparities. The report added that black communities in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York City were also targets because airborne pollutants disperse for miles before becoming ozone smog. Asthma may grow milder with age, but it doesn't always. This lifelong malady kills adults, like actor Moses Gunn and newscaster Harold Dow, as well as children. African Americans account for 13% of the U.S. population, but 26% of asthma deaths. Although animal dander and dust mites are known to trigger asthmatic attacks, studies revealed that living in homes infested by cockroaches also elevates risk. Children also encounter these vermin in antiquated schools, where racial minorities are more likely to spend their days because school racial segregation is worsening rather than abating. IQ and Oxygen But what has the heightened African-American asthma rate to do with lowered intelligence and depressed IQ scores? everything. People with asthma suffer episodes where they struggle to breathe, sometimes for very long periods. In so doing, they often experience hypoxia, the deprivation of oxygen to the brain. If this continues for too long, asthmatics, near-drowning victims, and others who suffer hypoxia can experience lifelong after-effects, including lower neuropsychological performance, according to Harvard researchers, who studied perinatal exposures and later cognition. They write that a significant impact on multiple behavioral and cognitive outcomes was found in newborns who had suffered hypoxia when they were tested at age 7. This included a decreased verbal IQ. Air pollution doesn't lower intelligence only through triggering asthma. The University of California's Anthony S. Wexler and Pamela J. Line write that other aspects of air pollution cause a legion of brain disorders, including degenerative disease, in particular Alzheimer's disease, AD, and diverse neurodevelopmental disorders, including autism spectrum disorder, ASD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, learning and intellectual disabilities, and schizophrenia. In recent decades, new tools and closer scrutiny have allowed us to see how diesel fuel residues and air pollution directly damage the brain and lower intellect. A 2008 Harvard School of Public Health study of 1,000 pregnant Boston women who carried backpacks to measure their air pollution exposure until they delivered found that they were constantly exposed to about 0.53 micrograms per cubic meter of black carbon exposures associated with intellectual decline. When these women's children underwent a battery of cognitive tests 8 to 11 years later, these exams revealed measurable decreases in verbal and nonverbal intelligence as well as in memory. They found lowered scores consistently at all levels of exposure. These linear regression-based analyses did not establish causation, but this is strong evidence. A subsequent study found that children around age 10 who had been exposed to air with high levels of black carbon, soot, suffered a decrease in cognitive function across assessments of verbal and nonverbal intelligence and memory constructs. The scientists concluded that particulate matter, tiny airborne pieces of various carbon compounds and heavy metals as a result of burning fuel, was largely responsible. Referencing both studies, the Harvard scientists confirm that ultrafine particles can reach the brain, raising the question of whether traffic particles can have neurotoxic effects. The resulting degree of cognitive and memory impairment is comparable to that caused by environmental neurologic poisonings. A 10 microgram per deciliter increase in blood lead is associated with a loss of about 5 IQ points. Children whose mothers smoke moderately have an average decrease of 4 IQ points. In the group of Boston children, a 0.4 micrograms per cubic meter increase in airborne black carbon predicted a 3-point decrease in IQ. Few of us who are non-scientists can meaningfully compare these exposures. How does 10 micrograms per deciliter of blood lead Compare to 0.4 micrograms per cubic meter of inhaled carbon, for example, but we can see that for these common exposures, the drop in IQ range is similar, around three to five points. As laid out in chapter two, a five point drop in IQ is not trivial. It has serious individual and societal implications, including the ability to drag down the national average IQ the number of intellectually gifted persons, and the income of the entire nation. Elevated carbon dioxide CO2 levels also lower intelligence when they impair breathing, inducing oxygen deprivation and often triggering asthma. So, befouled air degrades cognitive development and brain function, depressing the IQ 3-4 to points in some studies. But studies also show that such oxygen deprivation also induces anxiety, depression, and suicide as well as lowered intelligence. Magnetic Malady Scientists don't understand every specific route of air pollution injury. But Environmental Health Perspectives reports one known mechanism by which particulate matter like black carbon from the incomplete burning of fossil fuels injures the brain. It consists of millions of tiny spheres of several carbon forms, including, for example, magnetite and iron oxide, better known as rust. These are already known to cause preterm births and disability. Although they are imperceptibly small, one must join 250 of these nanospheres to achieve the thickness of a human hair. These particles are made out of iron, and iron is very reactive so it's almost certainly going to do some damage to the brain, explains Professor David Alsop, an Alzheimer's specialist at Lancaster University. When it comes to Alzheimer's, air pollution has become a prime suspect. Recent laboratory studies have suggested that iron particles like magnetite contribute to the disease's characteristic protein plaques. In the journal F-1000 Research, Sung-Hoo Kim reports that the characteristic amyloid plaques of Alzheimer's quickly appeared in mice after they were exposed to tiny components of polluted air, called nickel nanoparticles. When people who died in heavily polluted Mexico City were autopsied in 2004, amyloid plaques and inflammation were found throughout their brains. The tiny particles of magnetite in air pollution have also been linked to dementia and to Alzheimer's by other U.S. studies. As Time magazine notes, the plaque and inflammation-affected populations tend to be poor, black, and Hispanic ones concentrated in low-income areas. African-American rates of Alzheimer's are as much as 100% higher than those of whites, constituting what the Alzheimer's Association calls a silent epidemic among black Americans. This type of pollution may help explain why. And understanding its role in causing the disease may present a route to a cure. However, scientists writing in current Alzheimer's research think that a potential solution exists now. Prenatal choline supplementation, which is also touted as a potential treatment for Down syndrome and as a preventative measure against fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Airborne nanoparticles of magnetite cause all this neurological mayhem because they literally invade the brain. This ore, more magnetic than any other natural mineral in the world, is unleashed into the air by diesel-burning vehicles. When polluted air is inhaled, magnetite travels from the nose to the brain along the olfactory nerve. Animal studies also indicate that particles can migrate from the upper respiratory tract to the nervous system and the brain. Skeptics who question magnetite's danger to cognition point out that it occurs naturally in the human brain and therefore is unlikely to be an agent of harm. Magnetite is found naturally in the brain, but natural and safe are not synonyms. In 2016... Scientists found an abundance of human-made magnetite in about 40 representative samples of human brains from Mexico City and Manchester, England. They knew the magnetite came from air pollution because naturally occurring magnetite and the pollution-borne type, the one suspected of causing disease, are quite different. Intrinsic magnetite is jagged and crystalline, but the high heat of industrial engines produces pollutant magnetite that is smoothly rounded and this foreign type is present in the brains of pollution affected people in far greater quantities as much as 100 times the amount of the naturally occurring form a research study described in Scientific American also links Alzheimer's to DDT and suggested that genetic vulnerability may combine with DDT exposure to create the most devastating cases Air pollution damages the brains and undermines mental abilities of adults, too, and even the elderly. Cognitive damage was measured in older women from both rural and urban environments with long-term exposure to air pollution from heavy traffic, and it was found to be cumulative, increasing over time. Of course, in order to interpret this damage, researchers had to correct for many confounding factors. These included sporting activities, age, education level, depression, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, chronic vascular disease, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, and diabetes. Having done so, they were confident in concluding that air pollution poses a threat to the intelligence of the elderly. Petrochemical Corridors According to American companies' own toxic release inventory filings for 2010, 21,000 U.S. facilities reported discharging 3.9 billion pounds of toxic chemicals into U.S. land and air. In Louisiana alone, 361 industries released 130 million tons of hazardous wastes and emissions fully 64% of which was dumped into the black parishes that are home to cities like Olson, which is 98.9% African-American. The industry calls this the petrochemical corridor, but for its residents, the plethora of excess disease has earned it the sobriquet Cancer Alley. Bullard adds, The playgrounds in Norco, Louisiana, which sits in Cancer Alley, are across from a huge shell refinery. You stand there 15 minutes, and you can't breathe. Moreover, industries have dumped 21.8 billion pounds of industrial waste into the water. And African American, Hispanic, and Native American communities are in closest proximity to these toxic spewing industries. Native American communities in particular, which often lack access to potable water, basic health care, or even electricity, are plagued by waterborne pollutants, poisoned fish, and coal-fired energy plants that disgorge mercury. One of every ten U.S. power plants sits on Native American land. In this chapter, I describe a few of these poisoned communities and how they have been plagued by intellect-sapping toxic exposures. But first, I recount a mid-1980s encounter that brought home to me the realization that some U.S. industries poison unsuspecting Americans with impunity. Manufacturing Confusion Benzene, Sulfides, and Fence Line Communities I met Cecil Fisher only once, but I will never forget him. His brother Eric was a fellow movie buff who, as we caught up between showtimes, told me that Cecil had nearly died of leukemia, As Eric and I stood beneath a theater's marquee in Rochester, New York, early one summer evening, a man approached us with a strange gait, unsteady yet rapid. His skin was coarse, his face gaunt, his eyes sunken, and his pale cotton shirt billowed around his precariously thin form. His crinkly reddish-brown hair was so sparse that his entire scalp was visible. Smiling, he drew closer and clasped hands with a beaming Eric who exclaimed, Cecil, you're walking without the cane, all right. Only then did I realize that this was not a wizened older man, but Eric's twenty-something brother. As we chatted about our lives and jobs, Cecil mentioned that he had felt well enough to begin job hunting, but decided to postpone it on his doctor's advice. I feel okay, but I have trouble filling out the forms and remembering the simplest things. I felt like an idiot when I couldn't remember my birth date or the name of my high school, and they wouldn't let me take the form home with me. My doctor says memory problems sometimes happen, and I should give it time. He paused. I'll need a new job, though. Cecil had recently been dismissed from the furniture factory where he'd worked for years, but said he was glad because his job had been to stand inside a vat containing benzene, dipping chairs into it, and he hated the smell. It gets into everything. I was appalled. Benzene? B-E-N-Z-E-N-E? I asked, hoping that he meant benzine, a word with which it is easily confused. Are you sure? That's what the sign says. The brothers continued to laugh and banter, but I was too stunned to hear another word. I worked in a poison control center, and I knew that benzene can cause leukemia. I moved away soon after and lost touch with his brother, so I don't know whether Cecil recovered. But I know now that surviving cancer may not have ended his medical problems, and his memory problems may have stemmed from his benzene exposure as well. According to the CDC, Benzene causes more than cancer, blood diseases, and impaired reproduction. It also assails the brain with neurological and cognitive effects like short-term drowsiness, convulsions, confusion, and mental impairment. These thinking problems may not abate with time. In fact, a toxicology report based on the study of 2,143 utility workers found that high exposure to solvents was significantly associated with poor cognition. For example, those highly exposed to chlorinated solvents were at risk of impairment on the mini-mental state examination. Moreover, pregnant women face a dual risk, one to their own health and one to the health of their fetuses. Benzene can also induce neurobehavioral changes in babies that lead to cognitive damage. Benzene plagues workers beyond the urban factory where Cecil was employed. In 2015, Tonawanda Coke of Tonawanda, New York was ordered to pay $12 million in civil penalties for violations of the clean air act after its failure to follow safety regulations resulted in releases of Coke oven gas, which contains benzene and other harmful chemicals in all More than 6.7 million African-Americans, who constitute 14% of the national population, face toxic exposures to benzene and sulfur dioxide emissions from oil refineries in 91 counties. Fumes across the fence line, the health impacts of air pollution from oil and gas facilities on African-American communities, a 2017 report by the Clean Air Task Force, CATF, and the NAACP, found that more than one million African Americans live within half a mile of an oil and gas operation. This is not news to pioneering environmental sociologist Robert Bullard, father of the environmental justice movement. Since the 1990 publication of Dumping in Dixie, his first book on environmental racism, He has decried the high disease rates plaguing fence-line communities of African Americans.
0: That is the context of white supremacy for this here week. We'll pick up next week. We're still in Chapter 3. It'll be our fourth installment. Harriet A. Washington, A Terrible Thing to Waste. The number to dial, 605 313 five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate we have a little less than 30 minutes left in the broadcast if you did not get to participate during the first uh, section where we shared Go ahead and get your hand up right now. Please do not wait until the last five minutes if you think you have a question, comment about the text that we have read. Uh, all the folks who are with us who have a hand up, lines should be open. Again, press star six one if you would like to participate. Don't be bashful if we've not heard from you. In fact, you should have your hand up right now so we can get to you first uh, to make sure that you do get on the line. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open if you have uh, questions, comments, proceed. Hello. Oh. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you.
8: Um, I'm going to make it fast. Um I I believe you're Henry in Chicago. I had a note for you. Um, When I lived in Lake County, Illinois, there's a a trailer park city called Park City. And um, I believe it's the same situation she talked about in the book. Um, The city of Waukegan is by the Superfund cleanup. And Park City is literally a trailer park. And because it's close to, I don't know if you're familiar with Gurney, I'm pretty sure it's a case of that same thing that she described in the book, these really poor white people being protected from ecological um, terrorism there in Lake County. Um, I taught myself a little bit more about chemistry out of boredom, um, and one thing I learned is you can take an element or um, an atom of some sort and make it deadly by just adding one extra electron, to it or what are like, like changing the bond and the isotopes and all this other stuff. And, and they know that, um, just like with oxygen, you know, we need oxygen, but you add too much of it and make it 0 three, then it's completely poisonous. Um, in, in, uh, Southern Louisiana, of course, around new Orleans where I've lived all my life, mostly, um, there is, there are two cities that are um replete with refineries. One is Miro. Miro is definitely has visible refineries. And the next city uh before that in what's called uh Saint Bernard Parish is um Shelmet, Louisiana and the so called poor white trash and I'm air quoting but you know that's what they refer to them as lived out there. But what's right after that in the downwind the Ninth Ward and New Orleans East, um, which suffered another form of uh, terrorism later. Um, and I also want to note, real quick, that I question the safety, since they were talking about gases and fumes, I question the safe- safety of acetone and acetate. Um, and they, you know, obviously women use that to uh, either take off polish or remove fingernails. And I've always noticed when I started getting my nails done, I don't do it now, but when I went in the nail shops, everybody had masks on, and I'll
0: mute my line. Uh, much obliged to Irie, Cancer Alley. Henry in Chicago. Um, yeah, so on
9: 113 where it says, Nine of New York City's ten bus depots are located in Harlem. That is, that is an amazing stat. There, when you talk about New York City, nine of the ten bus depots of New York City was located in Harlem. I'm talking about the largest city in the United States. That I mean, I, when I saw that, I was I was actually amazed. Um. What uh, on page one twenty two? What Irie was saying uh, before, uh, and I am I'm familiar with that too. uh, And I wanted to bring this to light. Uh, On page one twenty two, it says in relatively affluent and white areas, policing of the environment is visibly stringent. Um, I wanted to. I know last week I gave an example of Crestwood, Illinois, which is predominantly white. Uh, It was the area of Chicago, a suburb of Chicago, where the water was contaminated, and they resolved that within a year. Uh, This happened in 2009. There was another incident that just happened recently in uh, Willowbrook, Illinois, uh, not too far from another Chicago suburb. Uh, 2018, they found out that there was a high cancer rate in Willowbrook. Now, Willowbrook is about 85% white. Uh, they found out that there was a higher cancer rate uh, in uh, Willowbrook. What they found out that there was a company called Sterigenics, uh, a medical sterilizing company that was releasing, that had a factory there that was releasing toxins in the air uh, that was causing cancer within uh, the residents of Willowbrook and I think Oak Park, uh, another predominantly uh, white area. Well, just, this past September, Sterogenics shut down their operations in Willowbrook and left the town. This is what happens when white people are being polluted and contaminated. When they realize that they're being polluted and contaminated, they resolve the issue immediately. Uh, black people, if that town was predominantly black, Sterogenics would still be there pumping out the uh, toxic cancerous air and on 126 uh this was another thing that kind of surprises me uh where at the bottom of 126 it says when it comes to alzheimer's air pollution has become a prime suspect now that is interesting because uh one of my grandmothers uh had died uh she had alzheimer's and I, i remember looking up some information about it and i never saw anything in regards to pollution being the cause of 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 Alzheimer's, you know most primarily they would say um, they would probably uh attribute it to to genetics or they would probably attributed to you know you're not using your brain or anything that says your brain, but I never saw anything that says pollution so that this was an interesting thing that uh, uh, Harriet Washington came up with and and I would you know I'd like to probably do some more research on this uh, I know she she has a lot of things in here in regards to it, but I thought that was
7: uh, very
0: interesting. Uh, but that's all I had on me for life. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, questions or comments to offer. Thomas in New York. Good evening once again to so everyone. Um,
3: like I said, I love this book. Uh Just if people want to do some research of their own, look up um, the U.N. mission investigates extreme poverty in the U.S. from Alabama to California. Excellent report um, showing the hookworm down in Lawrence, Alabama, and the um, extreme homelessness of black people in a scared Row. The bus depot on on 146th Street, very familiar with it, right around the corner from me to see it if I look at walk to my corner, I'll be looking at it. Um, what a disgrace. Um they just rebuilt it. I um, mean I'm talking the last two years. Um and I swear for the last fifteen years it just was un you know, just uh they were building it for about fifteen years. They finally rebuilt it. And um it's supposed to contain the smoke from the bus stacks, you know. Now, during the time that they weren't um, this thing wasn't operable. The buses were just double parked outside. So, it was, you know, I, I would imagine that was much bet worse for the people, you know, uh, in the area, um, than them being indoors. So, uh, terrible. Um, uh, and I am quite familiar with most of the bus depots in Manhattan all being uptown, um, it's a disgrace um and i never really paid attention. only one downtown is the port authority on 42nd street i mean it's the only one downtown and that's completely in indoor and inundated and like seven stories so you know smoke has a long way to get out but man terrible um all the new energy efficient buses are in the white areas um they're not the ones i see um rolling into the bus depot around the corner from me they're, but I do see these energy efficient electric buses, so I imagine um they're being housed in white areas. Um I didn't like the part when the author said that um white people um felt shame would feel shame, and that's why they don't use certain certain verbiage or I I just don't agree with white people being shamed at all. Um the asthma, um very familiar with that as well. Uptown New York and South Bronx. I equate it to all the major highways run through these areas. I 95, um, 78, um, Route 1, you know, it all runs through these areas, to the George Washington Bridge, you know, um, so I equate that to that. Um, terrible how everything is just situated to run through the Bronx, the least white of all the barrels. In fact, it's 90% non white. Um, Harvard. Um, I think they said the P.F. Chang School of Social Behavior, the Harvard School of Public Health. You know, they've been studying this. You know, this isn't something that they're just that they're, they're um, totally uh, unoblivious to. They know what they're doing. I mean, they study it. They refine it. They perfect it in the best schools in the country or maybe the world. This is what they do. If it's in Harvard, it's in Princeton, they have the same type of criteria um, or on creden- on critiques and credentials. Uh, the IQ tests are gaged to gather information to get accurate data on how effective their racism-like supremacy is working. She's showing in the book how they can effectively lower IQ scores just by adding chemicals into people's environment to lower your score. Even if you were on par with white people IQ-wise, they could lower it. You know, just put a bus depot in. You know, put a highway going through there. It's real easy. Um, they talked about nanoparticles. Another article: All-terrain microbots move by tumbling over complex topography. Uh, All-terrain microbots move by tumbling over complex topography. You can get you can see some of these nano Um and that's what nanoparticles are. All nanoparticles are being made um, in nature. Nothing becomes nano. You know, you human has to interact with. Um, the benzene exposure, that's the last thing. Working at a factory, a furniture factory, the majority of the furniture in the country that's not bought from a developing country outside of the United States is made in prison. Um, So that doesn't shock me at all. Um, Bob's really more funny. And again, Ashley adds the name. That's where they get their furniture from. I mean my line. Thank you, guys.
0: Buddy. Real easy to get an inmate to stand in a pit of benzene. Dip that chair in there, Negra. Yes. Maybe we'll uh, add an extra 10 cents to your books. Give you a tube of toothpaste. Greater confinement or, you know, got lots of ways of coercing to get what we want done. Other folks who have comments, questions, uh, if you have a hand up, you should be with us. Any other folks listening and have comments, questions? They wanted to make sure. Hmm, that's so odd. Can I, can I be heard? <clears throat> Greetings, retired firefighter.
2: Yes, uh, from listening uh, to the uh, the the book, uh, it just reminds me as a uh, in my younger years, uh, all the way up until that. Uh, teenage years uh, the uh, area that is called in the city of Miami that's called Coconut Grove uh, it was first allowable for non-white black people to stay in the western portion uh, away from the uh, Biscayne Bay and the Atlantic Ocean of course uh, the city of Miami's garbage system main garbage system uh with a huge smokestack uh, was located in the area right next door to the schools that was in the area for black children. I can still smell in my brain that sweet smell of garbage that used to come out of that stack. Uh, I used to go there to visit my uh, grandmother a lot, and uh, I can still. And you now it, it just the, the book itself reminds me of that, just by uh, listening to uh, the uh, the book report. That's all I have to say. Thank you.
0: Much obliged, retired firefighter. Those incinerators put those next to the negros. Uh, let's see other folks that we have missed uh, especially if you haven't spoken at all uh, if you have a hand up star six one proceed anybody that we've missed totally that has a hand up that we've not been able to hear from that is so crazy Hmm, uh, I'll double check and make sure the switchboard is not acting a little funky. I thought I had opened up one of the lines. We'll try one more time. Let's see. All right, let's see. Did that work? Yes. Any other folks with us who had comments they wanted to make sure they get in?
1: Uh, hi, can I be heard?
0: Greetings, mania.
1: Hi, greetings, um uh, callers and listeners. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, oh, I'm enjoying the book. Um, very informative. She has a lot of um, great information, just like in the medical apartheid. Um, I put that right there with um medical apartheid. Um, I wanted to make a comment. Um, in regards to um, when she was talking about how the um, iron um was affecting. Um, the people um in you know uh, the people in the neighborhoods and things like that and how they had um higher um forms of disease and it and she was suspecting they were suspecting that it was caused by iron and um, nickel and and uh I was just thinking how um uh the chemtrails, you know, when they doing they're doing the spraying um over, you know, uh, the areas. Um, we're not sure what what exactly is in those those sprays. So I would suspect that some of that stuff that they're spraying is uh, also contributing to um, a lot of these um, ailments, um, um, ailments, illnesses also. And um, also um, I would say that the um, vaccines, because we know that the vaccines have um, all these different uh, mercury and different types of um, all these different, um, uh, poisons um uh, in these vaccines so um of course we've made the connection before that a lot of these uh, vaccines um have um or uh, a contributing factor to a lot of these um illnesses and stuff like that too um and i also as far as the um the gentleman that um that got that was sick that she was prescribing and how she was um the guy um was saying that um he looked like he was like eighty years old, and he was only um twenties, in his twenties, and it was due to um I guess the environmental um pollution that he was working while he was working at his job. I just thought that it was um really sad that um he had to go through that, but I can um identify because I've grown up um and um you know lived in some areas um that uh you know uh had to deal with the roaches and, you know, mice and all of those, you know, all of those, um, um, things, factors that do lead to, um, just us getting sick, um, you know getting um you know affected by illnesses just because of um white supremacy racism and that's really what the main factor is that's causing all these problems is because of white supremacy uh racism and that's all I really want to share and thanks for allowing me share, uh, to share
0: that. Much obliged to raptomania. Absolutely. Racism, white supremacy designed to be a health plague for black people. Uh, one of the folks who emailed in, longtime investor, listener, the section of this reading that was most revealing to me was the quote attributed to the sales manager of the Genesee County Land Bank, Flint's largest property owner, Phil Stair. We remember it. Well, Flint has the same problem as Detroit. Bucking niggers don't pay their bills, believe me, I deal with them, end quote. When suspected racists are completely honest, it is truly enlightening. There you go. Uh, uh, Until justice at gmail.com. If you would like to email any thoughts, uh, questions as we move through the book, uh, we still have a ways to go. We are only on chapter three. Uh, Let's see. From the third chapter. She says the 1983 report, based on that study, solid waste sites and the Black Houston community determined that all five of the city's garbage dumps, six of its eight garbage incinerators, and three of its four privately owned landfills were located. In African American neighborhoods, although only 25% of the city's population was black. That's the sort of detail that I can appreciate. Like, this is especially targeting Negras. And Dr. Bullard, he was a guest on uh, Democracy Now! My BFF, Amy Goodman, after the hurricane in houston this was just within the last year or so remember or maybe folks don't remember uh but within the last uh two years they had that big hurricane uh in houston and that was one of the problem they had all that flooding that was one of the problems uh, is that they have all this un- unregulated industry uh and they were showing the smokestacks and just all of this uh, industries that are just polluting and of course where is this located where the negras are but they had Dr. Bullet he was on Uh, I think he either didn't evacuate or they left briefly and then came back and were talking about you know all the problems and people were were coughing and the skin irritants and everything just because uh, I think people were just dumping things toxic sludge that was what they said in Hurricane Katrina toxic sludge same type of thing Houston Dr. Bullet we'll see if we can start the program next week with that Uh, let's see in 1979, Bullard and his wife, attorney Linder McKeever Bullard, sued to stop, uh, sued to stop, the sitting of yet another municipal landfill in Houston's suburban Northwood Manor uh, neighborhood. Except for the fact that it is over 82% African American, this suburban middle-class community was an unlikely location for a garbage dump, illustrating that African American neighborhoods, middle-class and poor alike, were Preferential toxic waste sites. Preferential, not poor people, not poor black and brown people, not LGBTQ people, black people. Doesn't matter if you make money or not. We are the niggers. That's where we want the toxic landfill to go. That's system of white supremacy racism. Doesn't matter if you work hard. Doesn't matter how much you went to school. Where the Negras? Toxic landfill is supposed to go there. Might have time for one more bit of it. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, might have time for one more. Report. There were just so many uh, areas. She talked about the mold and the impact uh, in terms of asthma for a yoga instructor and how we talk about breathing. That's a whole nother component to not being able uh, to breathe. Uh, And her just her casual observation of, wow, these black children I grew up with having asthma and and that, you know, being kind of odd thing. Uh, And That also being deliberate, we know we're going to have a whole lot of these niggers that are not going to be able to breathe and how that's going to compromise their quality of life, what they're able to do, what they're not able to do, particularly in their childhood. We already... And black people, 26% of the deaths from asthma. Medical apartheid on many different levels, but uh, yeah, let's see. Anything else? Make sure... We'll be on this book for a while. So if you are listening in, if you're not able to participate live during the broadcasts, you will have ample opportunity. If you would like to email, submit a question, uh, submit something to think about as we're uh, proceeding through the book. This is not necessarily a short book. So we have uh, a ways to go uh, before we're all done. Feel free to participate as we proceed. Um, mm-hmm. the young or the black male yeah, the young fella she said 20s if you're in your 20s that's a young fella you get a guy in his 20s and he looks like he's old and decrepit and about to die that, I mean and if this person's not in greater confinement I thought that was a great point Thomas in New York made about the friendship but let's, this fella's not in greater confinement what type of pressure are they exerting where, hey, this is your job. I, I'm sure this fella is not making, you know, $100,000. I could be wrong. Uh, what type of pressure are are they exerting on him to, well, you want to keep your job? <sighs> you better get in that tub and, you know, dip that chair in that benzene. I mean, I can't imagine them giving him, like, a hazmat suit and proper training <laughs> with how to deal with all of that. Like, what type of, tr- oh, excuse me, what sort of, pressure is brought to bear on someone that would make them continue in that sort of work environment that's why i say all the time you have to take your safety seriously and you have to be the one who prioritizes your safety because that right there will happen to a whole lot of black people i don't care get on in there we'll sit back and crack jokes about it have you on you know instagram laughing about look at that coon got him in the benzene he's going crazy look at his brain particles falling out of his ear right there that many different times many different ways could be articulated from what we read this week that is another illustration the system of white supremacy racism wow we will pause here and resume uh, next Thursday same time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific will be here tomorrow for workplace racism much obliged for everyone's participation I hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy she mentioned noxious alcohol previously as a part of the chemical and biological on- onslaught as did Henry in Chicago even with the new legislation in addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. We had an homage to Freddie Gray this evening. Buckled up every time. And if you are driving, you're sober, buckled up. You are not on the cell phone. If you are behind the wheel, again, just trying to do the small things to stay as safe as possible under extraordinarily dangerous conditions with that creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
4: Nigga, you're
3: so brainwashed.
0: I'm a victim, brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah.
3: Shut I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning Shut up The man
0: has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned
1: With the Lucky Land Sluts You can get lucky just about anywhere
2: This is your captain speaking uh, We've got clear runway And the weather's fine But we're just gonna circle up here a while And uh, get lucky No, no, nothing like that It's just these cash prizes add up quick So I suggest you sit back Keep your tray table upright And start getting lucky